the vintage metagame three months later on episode 69 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 69 of So Many Insane Plays, our summary of the vintage metagame since the restrictions of Gush and Gataxian Probe. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments or questions, you can tweet us at many insane plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. For announcements this episode, I want to touch on a handful of upcoming local events because we're having quite the rash of vintage tournaments here in the Great Lakes region, especially in Michigan. Yeah, there's a there's a bump of, a bunch of trials bubbling up all over the country, huh? They're just that breaking been, out a breakout. Yeah, it has been one of the drivers, definitely. So upcoming locally, RIW, which is on the east side of the state of Michigan, on August 13. That's a regular not trial proxy event. And the weekend after that, there's a TSO. Is that 15 proxy, in, unlimited proxy? It's unlimited proxy. Nice. Uh, weekend after that, on 819 at Kid Force in Sandusky, Ohio, is a Team Serious Open, which is also a, a proxy event. That's not a trial. But then RIW is having another trial on September 9. <laughs> so that one's sanctioned. Keep that in mind, September 9. Sanctioned. And so you go from 100% proxies to 100% must to 0% own the proxies. Yeah. I, I have a comment about that, which is interesting. And that is our attendance is similar for full proxy versus sanctioned events. <laughs> Explain. Well, it's just that our sanctioned events pull different players from, yeah. from around the, the state. It's really interesting. interesting. We have people who have only come out for the sanctioned events because I, I guess... They either really want the trial, uh, they, just, they really want the buy, or they just really want to play with their they cards. Want the planeswalker points. <laughs> I don't know what yeah. it is. I've no, talked to a couple of them, but it's it's strange. Yeah. Is there a cap? So the, what we lose? Is there a cap in, on the number of buys that people can get? Is it is it like you win a buy uh, yes. and then okay, so you, you can't can get like win two buys two. like the like the good old days where you used to you we I won that tournament. <laughs> I won a number of these these trials in the past, and it was always two buys. But, but now That's you're right. saying... You can win two win. of them and get two buys. That, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, BC Comics in Battle Creek has not yet announced their next event, be it August or September. So I'll try to keep that updated on future shows. So lots oh. of vintage action here well, in the coming an, months in the Great Lakes There's region. another trial. Yeah, there's another trial out here on the West Coast at Eudaimonia in Berkeley on August 12th. So it'll be sanctioned. Sweet. Yeah, so it's... um. I'm looking forward to that. I'll definitely play in that. If you're in Berkeley or in the Bay Area, you should show up and play some sanctioned vintage for for a, a buy. Have you have you had a trial out there at Udo before? We've never had we've never had one out here for Eternal Weekend. Okay. Because you know Eternal Weekend, what this is this will be the fifth Eternal Weekend in the U.S. North America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, everyone, hit your local LGS up for uh, <laughs> for trials if you can. <laughs> Steve, what other content updates do you have? Well, the History of Vintage series I mentioned the last uh, episode. By the way, I really enjoyed our, our set review. We got a lot of positive feedback on that, Kevin. So anyone listening to us missed our set review, go check that out. 
Um, but mm-hmm. the history Definitely. of vintage series is is the history of vintage series is picking up steam quickly. Uh, you know, the last article I published was the history of vintage 2004, which was in January. Since in the last couple of weeks, I finished the 2005 chapter, the 2006 chapter, and the 2007 chapter. They're all at the editor, Jason Jaco. So uh, he told me that he actually we're in the final stages of editing 2005. So it should be up probably by the time this podcast airs. But the point, I'm, the reason I'm sharing that is because now that I'm on a roll and I have 2008, <laughs> 2009, I think that's chapter, 2008 will be chapter 16 and then 2009 is chapter 17. I should have all of these well done before the end of the year, except for, of course, the 2017 year, which means that we're going to have a really sweet book. You know, I have to be thoroughly edited again for book format and I have to go back and, you know, insert things that I've accumulated since I published the earlier chapters. But the book should be right off the hot off the press in early 2018. So and as I said before, it's going to be a sweet book. So there's that. Um, The I'm also publishing around the time this podcast goes live, I hope, Understanding Gush, the final chapter, question mark, which is a kind of, (laughs) (laughs) it's an addendum to the Gush book. um, And it'll deal with some of the themes themes we're going to discuss today in our metagame update and then Ben and Restricted List discussion. But I'll let, I'll just direct your attention to that article once it's live. And then finally, one of the many projects I've had in both the History of Vintage series, but also generally, is is in, in fact, our two podcasts ago, Kevin, we looked at the Star City Games Power 9 series. And that was partly because I was working on the History of Vintage 2005 chapter at the time. But I've since done, created a spreadsheet and a document in which I've looked at every single Star City Games Power 9 event, and there were 28 of them. <laughs> and uh, I will, uh, I've got all the top eight deck lists. I've got who top eighted. In fact, I created a spreadsheet, Kevin, that has all the people who individually top aided and how many times they top aided. It's something like, you know, 130 unique top eights out of like 216 possible. It's really incredible. It's really cool. So I'll publish an article sometime in August that will have a complete breakdown of that. And I will have things like the road warrior, the person who played in the most number of, of those tournaments, uh, you know, people who top aided the most. I'll have a number of different awards and I'll also do some highlights, you know, like largest event, um, some of the coolest decks in that series. So just uh, something in the queue. You know, it's completely outlined. That'll be free, and that'll be in sometime in August. Awesome. I look forward to it. So let's turn to our metagame report. And Kevin, just to be clear, we're going to be looking at the current vintage metagame. So this is kind of like a vintage championship preview show in a sense, but not really because we're still <laughs> months on advance. A little early. If you are... Yeah, if you're going to any of these trials, if you're going to, you know, um, trying to buy into Magic Online and you want to know what the format looks like, this report is going to give you all the data that you need to understand the current vintage metagame. Kevin, let's dive in. All right, let's do it. So, Steve, we've got data in a lot of different forms for this episode. We are yes, we are going yes. to break down the Q2 metagame basically on three different data sets and talk about their their similarities and their differences. But we have two sets of Magic Online data. That is the challenges, going back to the restriction, the dailies, 
And then in paper, we have the regular top eight data for paper events as well, which I'll cover. But I believe we should start with the challenge data for Magic Online. Yes. To put it in, in terms that I think you've used before, we have more data than you can shake a Feldon's cane at. <laughs> so, uh, we'll, but we'll, and this is especially true for the challenges, because as folks remember, in mid-May, the challenges went from a monthly mm-hmm. event to a weekly mm-hmm. event. So as of now, the end of July, the day we're recording is the last day of July, we actually have 11 vintage challenges. Which is, which is nice. That's and a nice data set we're working on with now. It's, it's real nice. But the breakdown happens in a number of ways. So almost all of those challenges, we have a complete metagame breakdown, courtesy of Ryan, Ryan Eberhardt and Matt. Yep. There's, I think, one or two exceptions to that. And, and not only that, but now with the, with the weekly challenges, the non-Power 9, just the vintage challenges, Wizards is posting the entire top 32 deck lists. I mean, they've always done that, but now that the vintage challenges are smaller, it's essentially the bulk of the field. Right. The last event, I think, was like 39 past weekend, and there's, they give you the deck list for the top 32. So, so we have the entire metagame breakdown. We have the top eight decks, and we actually have the performances of each of the decks, so we can tell you what the win percentages are. So we can break it down any number of ways. What I'll do right now is I'll give you the top eight decks in the last 11 challenges. Then I will give you a little bit more information in some of those other at respects that we just mentioned. The top eight, I think, is the most telling, Kevin. <laughs> you mean so, of the whole pool of top eight decks, which, which decks appear yeah, the most well, often? Well, I, yeah, I think it's the most, te- well, it's the most telling in that it kind of, it's the mixture of representation and win percentage, right? right? It's because to get in the top eight, you have to not just be there, but you have to win. So it tells you a little bit of both. So there are 11 challenges, as we said, since April 24th. And they've occurred far more frequently since the middle of May. Um, There have been the number one. This is I know this is this is not great radio or podcast (laughs) because it's hard to follow along. So we'll repeat the numbers so you can really get a sense. But the far best performing deck or not deck, but kind of archetype were Thorn. (laughs) Actually, workshops specifically workshops specific. There were 30 workshops were 39 percent of top eights in the vintage challenges since the restriction, specifically 38.6%. Now, that's 38% over 11 events? Or over 39%, 11 events. Excuse me? 34, 34 shops out of 88 possible places. That does not count White Eldrazi. Wow. So that does not count Eldrazi. That is, I mean, so, that's, that's a pretty historic number. So yeah, just tuck in your head roughly 40%, and we'll come back to that when we when we come to the restriction discussion towards the end of this podcast. But yes, I have never... Now, it, it counts a lot of workshop decks, right? There's Ravager shops, there's like stacks decks, there's even there was even one workshop deck in there that was like more like a... There may have been a two-card Monty in there, I don't remember, but there was certainly a work... I think these are all sphere-based workshop decks, but there was one that was like a Dark Depths mm. shops in there. These are just yeah. workshops. As a mana-producing <laughs> card <laughs> is appearing in almost... Almost 40% of these um, of these top eights since the restriction. So the restriction of gush. Now, obviously, this is important. We don't want to get into the restriction discussion, but it is worth mentioning that the DCI predicted workshop. They said we hope workshops will, you know, not be quite as dominant, right? right? But we will get and to that more. The the opposite has happened, right? <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that more. So, but the one thing I want to mention specifically about workshops is they have the the last couple of events the one of the best win percentage against the field. So in the in the last challenge, their win percentage against the field was 65. Jeez. Right. 
in the uh, mid-July challenge, I, we don't have the actual win percentages for the July 23rd, but for the July 15th workshops, win percentage in the field was 67.2%. <laughs> and on July 8th workshops, win percentage in the field was 58.7%, which was tied for the best, well, just about, you know, it was near the, it was basically tied for second best percentage. And then going back all the way to July 1st, workshops win percentage was a little bit lower, was 56%, which is still very good. Anything above 50% is usually pretty good, <laughs> uh, you right. know? So workshops have really, really good, and they've gotten, the win percentage has gotten better over time, over the month of July. So it's not only by far the best performing, it's also, I'm sorry, it's not only by far the most populous, best, highest representation in top eight, it's also generally the best mm-hmm. performing and maybe slightly an overstatement. So workshops are 40% of the challenge top eights. And if you want to compare it to the actual metagame breakdown, it's not actually that different, right? I mean, the the percentage, for example, of workshops in the actual metagame, um, um, just for example, to take the most recent one, was 30%, 31%. So it's, you know, 38, 39% of top eights, but it's 31% of the field. So it's, that shows you kind of how it's doing, right? Popular Kevin? and converting better than its rate or better than its uh, representation it, in the metagame. Exactly, exactly. So let's go to the next best performing deck. The next best performing deck, and I put that in air quotes, is Mentor, because there's a lot of variants of Mentor. This includes the Paradoxical Mentor decks and the Jeskai Mentor decks and the Esper Mentor mm-hmm. decks, <laughs> right? So Mentor is 30% of top eights and the 11 challenges, there's 26 mentor decks. So you basically have shops at like 39, 40%, and then mentor at 30%. Both of those numbers are are amazing. And the sum of them is even more impressive. It is very, very high. I mean, we talked we talked about gush decks. You know, I, I know we don't want to comp- do the comparison yet, but I mean, that's just as well as the gush decks were performing before gush was restricted. Yeah, but even then, so, I mean, workshops wasn't also another 40% of the metagame. <laughs> No, so no, it wasn't. We'll, we'll actually do a direct comparison yeah, in a minute. Wow. But, but, I mean, well, maybe it, it's worth mentioning. Like, for example, um, Mentor at the Manadrain Open, remember, was only tw- tw- 19%, or European Champs was only 20%, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And the Marsh Challenge, Mentor, in the Marsh Challenge, the entire breakdown, Mentor was only 25%. In fact, in the challenges prior to April, Mentor was 10%, 11%, 24%, and 26%. So Mentor is actually more of the metagame since the restriction than it was before the restrictions of Gush and right. Pro by a substantial, statistically significant percentage, <laughs> you know, like five to 10%. Right, right. <laughs> um, which is interesting because, Kevin, you remember in those podcasts, I said counterintuitively, I thought the probability of Mentor increasing or staying the same was greater than the probability of Mentor declining after right. the restriction. In fact, that was on the podcast that we actually recorded right before the restriction right. and the day of. Okay, so getting back to the metagame breakdown of the challenges, the next, bearing in mind that the percentages are 39% and 30%, right? So it's basically like, I don't know, like two-fifths mm-hmm. of the field, if you like, are shots. Right. <laughs> and then almost, almost one-third of the field is mentor. That num- those numbers combined don't leave a lot of metagame right. space, right? <laughs> right? I mean, we're talking about 70, shops and mentor are roughly 70% of the top eights. So that only leaves 30% of the metagame left. 
The next best performing deck is four and a half percent, a 25% difference from the second to third place deck, you know, deck, and it's blue white Stoneblade. <laughs> and it primarily comes in the format of the four Spell Queller deck, four Stoneforge Mystic, four Snapcaster. There's there was four of them <laughs> in 88 decks. Four That's wild. That, that yeah. So the the metagame in the Vintage Challenges is extremely consolidated between Mentor and Shops. The rest of the metagame is three Paradoxical Outcome Drain Tendrils, three White Eldrazi, three Gifts, three Paradoxical Outcome Tezzeret. So if you want to combine the Tez and the ten- Drain Tendrils, you get to six. Three Dredge, two Oath, one DPS, one Mono Red Hate, one Grixis Thieves, one Landstill, one Jeskai Delver, one Academy Combo, which had Paradoxical Outcome, and then one Merfolk. <laughs> Good old Merfolk. <laughs> Good old Merfolk. So that's the, that's the metagame, and you can find on the Mana Drain all the breakdowns of the metagame, not just, we just did the top eights, but you can find the total metagame breakdowns and you can find the win percentages against the field if you want more specificity. But that's the challenge. So the challenges are basically 39% shops, 30% mental, and then 4.5% blue white stone, <laughs> and then under like percent the rest. So, so how does that compare with the other data sets we have, Kevin? Well, it's interesting. The challenges actually compare in terms of the size and number of events and number of top eight decks, very similarly to our paper data. It's just, we have a similar number of events over the time period, month over month, week over week. It's just that the size of each event has a great, much greater variability in paper. We have cut off our uh, analysis at 16 player events for paper and so there are a couple of events in our data set here that are at that threshold at or, at or around 16 to 20 players but the paper events also scale up much higher than the challenges do because we've got events like the nyse open which was over 100 players so we have a much wider range of tournament size represented in the the paper data and the results show some similar trends and some greater variability, I think. So looking at the post-restriction period and the most popular decks in that period, we have a similar pattern in that we basically have a two-deck metagame at the top. Oh, sorry. You said a two or three? Two. But... Two. I mean, so month over month, it's consistently mentor in shops. In the in the yeah. second half of April, that is post restriction. Shops was twenty one percent. Mentor seventeen, for example. Yeah, twenty. Sorry, 21, one more time. You said month. No, over it's m- just the second half of April. Just post restriction April. Okay. Twenty one okay. and seventeen. But why don't you, why don't you give us why don't you give us the total breakdown and then we'll look at month well, by month. Well, like that's what I was going to. That's what okay. I was going to get at is that we have um a, a fair bit of variability in the paper data month to month. So in total. Over the post-restriction period of the second half of April through the end of July, there are 96 decks in paper, 21.9, so 22% of those are Mentor, 23% are Shops. I know, I'm sorry, I said them out of order. So So 23% and 22% (laughs) respectively. So it's about almost 50% compared to 70% 70 of the metagame. Yes. On Magic Online Compared to the challenges, paper shows a bit more diversity. And the third place deck, that is the deck that has the third most representation, actually vacillates from month to month. Some months it is Eldrazi, some months it is Paradoxical Outcome. But the third overall for that whole time period, the third most popular deck is Eldrazi at 9.5%. So 
it's a much larger representation from the Eldrazi than you find in the Vintage Challenges online. In fact, it's more than three times as much, <laughs> 9.5% versus, what, 3, 3%. But just to round out the top few more, the the there's a tie, actually, for fourth place between Oath and Paradoxical Outcome at 7.3%, and then everything else is 4% or less. Oath, Storm, Bug, Dredge, these are the... These are the rest of the metagame in the paper form, just as they are in the challenges. But the story really is echoed, just not to the same extreme. So you've got a two-deck metagame where either Eldrazi or Paradoxical Outcome are kind of jockeying for the third place for the last few months. Interesting. So it's it's essentially a metagame from your perspective that is primarily Shops and Mentor and secondarily Paradoxical Outcome. Is that what you're suggesting? Secondarily, paradoxical outcome in July, but in June, it was Eldrazi. Yeah. So, yeah, I I didn't mention this when we were talking about the the, the um, challenges, but I I could have. One of the things I think is really interesting is to observe paradoxical outcomes behavior. You know, it's a the the data that I the aggregate data I presented is a little bit misleading in that I said this, but the mentor decks include paradoxical outcome decks, mm-hmm. right? So. Maybe Kevin, I can before you go in the month by month, I can show, I can state what paradoxical outcome has done. Maybe that would be useful. Absolutely. Because I didn't, I didn't really do that very much. So, I've created a chart or a table that has a line graph associated with. It. You can see the vacillation or, or the oscillations of both mentor and taxing strategies in aggregate, right? And part of it, I created this was partly to kind of track the DCI's expectations against what it did. But one of the things I'm tracking is paradoxical outcome. So should I start with the restriction or do you want me to go back to the beginning of the year, Kevin? Paradoxical I think outcome. it would be helpful to have a bit of a setup before the restriction. Okay. So paradoxical outcome obviously was released in Kaladesh and Kevin, you and I were one of the first people to play it at the Vintage Championship. But it really didn't catch on besides us and until this year. Would you say that's yes. fair? There weren't a lot of paradoxical decks. In the January... Power 9 Challenge, 10% of the people in the 11%, if you round up, played Paradoxical Outcome. So it was 11% of the field, okay? This was this was in January. In February, Paradoxical Outcome doubled. It doubled to 20.6%. So 21%. It almost doubled. In March, it declined to 6.5%. So the 7%. So it went back, you know, it went back to even you know, less than where it was in January. Then in April, it declined in the April post-restriction metagame, it was only 3.6% of the metagame. So you got you got a, a kind of a full cycle, right? Right. 11% to 21% to 7% to, to 4%, <laughs> right? I mean, it kind of follows like a conch shell, right? <laughs> it's like it. then in May it climbs back up to nine to 10%, 9.6%, and then it goes back in the next challenge a week later, one week later to 21%, 20 actually 20.4%. Wow. So this pattern of behavior is just oscillating everywhere. In fact, this kind of reminds me of the bat pattern of behavior of Gush in 2011 and 2012 and 2010. You know, it like we'll get to that later, but that's kind of the pattern of behavior. Do you see what I'm saying, Kevin? Yep. It's kind of like an an- annual, now. but on a <laughs> Gush had an annual cycle, but paradoxical outcome <laughs> has been more compressed. Yeah, yeah, it's more compressed. Then the next challenge, it actually climbs another. It climbed almost five and a half percent. 26%. So that's that that danger, that red zone that you, right. Kevin, right? Past podcast where you say, like, if decks get up to, like, 26, 25%, you think they are putting... Yeah. I mean, yeah. Right? 
okay, the next challenge, it, go, it falls back to 18%. Then the next challenge, it goes up to 28%, <laughs> where it stays on the late June challenge to 29%, but then it, then it collapses to 12%, and then it goes to 13%, 19%, then to then to 16%, and it's basically sitting at 15.6% the last two challenges. So paradoxical outcome is literally all over the so place. So it, it had this right? wild ride. It looks like it was up, up and down, up and down, way down in April, but then in May, it had a nice, it averaged, what, 25% maybe in May. Well, well, yeah, actually in May it went from, there was only two oh, challenges it's, in it's May. It's May and June. Because, it, yeah, it's in June, right. It probably In June, it probably averaged about 25%. Or 24%, somewhere right yeah. around there. But then right. in July, it's back down to a much tamer 15% or so average, right? Exactly. It's a consi- July, it's been consistently under 20%. Now, one of, the interesting, so one of the interesting things is so weird. One of the interesting things about um, paradoxical outcome is that one of the arguments for restricting gush is that allow other blue decks to compete, right? Well, if you, if you take out the February challenge, paradoxical outcome is 11%, 7%, 12%. But if you add the February challenge, remember the February challenge, it was 21%. So like paradoxical outcome had this spike in February and then it disappeared. And the reason it disappeared is because it had a spike, but it didn't do very well. It got crushed by right. Melrod. So that's why it collapsed down to 6.5%. Sorry, it, it didn't actually go to 12%. It went from 6.5% to 3%. <laughs> so it collapsed, right? I was looking at the Manadrain Open uh, 18, where it was 12%, which happened in April. So... Um, and we don't have the paradoxical outcome deck for April second. Paradoxical outcome percentage for Euro champs, the vintage championship in Europe. Europe. It would be nice to have that, but we never have. We don't have that. So you're right. It it went from it went 11, 21, 7, 4 percent in April, where it completely collapsed. Then it went back up in May from it, it rebounded 10 to 20 percent, and then it kind of peaked in early June, and then went back down, then went back up to 29 percent, 28, 29 percent. And then has been consistently under 20% since. Now, one question, concern that you might have is given that pattern of behavior, it's certainly conceivable that if something is restricted, we could see paradox, paradox outcomes surge. But let's reserve that reserve that right. conversation for our restricted list conversation. So that's the pattern of behavior. Sorry, sorry, I just wanted to present that so people can kind of get a sense of what paradox outcome is actually. Well, and it has not been quite as exaggerated, but it has followed a similar unpredictable trajectory in paper as well. In the early part of the year, it was down in the single digits, 7-ish percent. In March, it spiked up to 16 or 17 percent, then down to even lower, down to 3, looks like, then 4 post-restriction. But then in June, so far this June, it's up at 17 percent. And so it hasn't spiked as high as it has online. But it has showed very similar right. unpredictable behavior. And it, it, so it appears that at any given moment, paradoxical outcome could be anywhere from 3% to 20% yeah. of the paper metagame. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, the only, it's never been more than 20%, except, except in February when it was 21%. And in those two weeks in in the end of June, uh, at the end, in middle and end of June, we're 28, 29%. So it's it's really unpredictable. You just don't know what's going to happen right. to it. I mean, do we? You know, I didn't I didn't mention the NYSE, but did you did you add the NYSE data in? Did you look and see what it was there? I have it in my data set, but I don't have that event specifically pulled out. I can I have a complete metagame breakdown of the NYSE thanks to Ryan uh, Eberhard. And that was obviously the largest vintage tournament I think we've had because it was 130 players. And Paradox Alakum was only 12.3% of the metagame there. Hmm. 
Now, it was one of the best performing decks by a hair. Had a win percentage of 58%, 57.8%. But it only put one person in the was, top eight. And that was a paradoxical mentor yeah. deck. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you just alluded Not- to one of the other things we should point out about paradoxical outcome, and that is, you touched on this a minute ago, but it should be reinforced that there is a lot of variability in how that deck is constructed. A lot. A lot. Exactly. We, are, we are lumping together yes. a lot of different approaches to outcome decks, and I think that might be contributing to the variance and the volatility is just because people are experimenting and trying a lot of different approaches to how you construct that deck, some of which have only two copies of outcome in them. Agreed. I completely agree. So I don't I don't know how you, you build that in, you know, <laughs> to your analysis of what, what to expect in going to an event. I think what you can expect, I mean, based upon everything we've said about the paper and the challenges, if you're going into a big vintage event, the metagame is going to be anywhere from, let's say, 10 to 20, 20-ish percent paradoxical mm-hmm. outcome and it's and there's some overlap of course between paradoxical outcome and mentor and it's going to be between what would you say kevin 13 percent to 25 percent mentor maybe 30 percent at the high end if you're playing in a challenge but we you know yeah i would say 13 is is pretty low right i mean well that's what the last challenge yeah but that's yeah, a low last point cha- it's a that's an, anom- that's a, an anomaly yeah, that's an anomaly yeah, I mean, because, you should expect i, I mean, would say 20 to 30 percent mentor let me- well, let me give you the actual ranges for mentors. So after the restriction, should, where should I start? <laughs> January or after the restriction? Just start after the restriction. I think people know the history well enough. Okay. Okay. Well, the April challenge had 11% mentor. And then it went in, in May. I'll just, I won't say the specific dates, but May was 27% mentor, 31% mentor, 30% mentor. Sorry, that's it. Uh, 30%, 31% mentor. Then June was 30% mentor, 22% mentor, 24% mentor, 31% mentor. And then July has been... 26% mentor, 26% mentor, 19% mentor, 38% mentor, and then 13% mentor. So it's just completely all over well, the place. Well, the last two have really thrown the uh, the variance for a loop. But yeah, in the intervening <laughs> right. period of, of May through June, it was relatively consistent between 20 and 30%, right? Relatively consistent. Agreed. And the average was probably about yeah. 26 or 27 through that period. The last couple of events yeah, have really yeah. been wild in terms of their results, though. So it's probably unlikely that you would see less than 20%. Yes, I think that would be highly unlikely. Fair enough. <laughs> so that's the, that's the basic metagame. There are a lot of other decks that see play, like White Eldrazi, Bug. Let's, let's um, where, where should we go next, Kevin? Do you want to, spe- I mean, we're going to talk about some of the specific decks, but um, do you have anything specific that we should mention about other archetypes that are in the metagame right now? Well, there haven't been... A, the, the development lately, in my estimation, has been evolutions of the, the standard pillars, right? There's been the evolutions of the mentor decks. There's been all the variants of experimentation and outcome and the evolutions in workshops. The mentor and shops evolutions have been in a pretty narrow band. Outcome has been very diverse, and then there are just a couple of new printings that I think are shaking things up. We touched on Harsh Mentor recently right. in a, a prior episode, we're for gonna, example. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk about those decks in just a second. But it, but I just want to just convey what people should expect in the metagame. Sure. What do you I think, think when you talk about percentage? Mentor? It's a pretty narrow band. Uh, Jeskai well, is still the most popular list. Is that what you mean? No, I actually mean outside of Mentor, Paradoxical Outcome, and oh, okay. Shops. Or even tax it, you know, what are the rough percentages people should expect in the current I see. Game? Well, like of dredge, oh, yeah. It, I um, mean, on average, for Eldrazi, Eldrazi, when you're playing in paper, Eldrazi can spike up to above 10%, like 13%. That's because of Null Rod. Yep. I mean, 
and, and that's mostly yeah, just budget yeah budget that's build. still mostly yeah. white eldrazi but tribal eldrazi is still making top eights here and there as well in paper um and then you it hasn't been hit hasn't been breaking the uh the third place barrier much lately but oath is still omnipresent and the percentage is about five to seven on average and just under that are things like storm that is regular non-outcome storm like dark petition and still good old bugfish and dredge in the three to five percent range <laughs> Um, no matter how much Bugfish is <laughs> oppressed by Mentor, people still <laughs> enjoy it and, and like to play it, and it does well every once in a while. The Leovolt, the Leovolt decks do tend to appear. I mean, there were seven point, almost eight percent of the metagame at the at the NYSE Open yeah. was Leovolt. Yeah. So I think people are continue Leovold to be attracted is... to Leovolt, and also I think the new printing of Ramanak Ramanap Exca Leovold. Excavator uh, is exciting people for Bug too. Exactly. That's something I specifically yeah. wanted to talk about. Well, should we pivot to the dailies and then we can shift to the actual decklets? Or is there anything else? Yeah, well, I don't want to put too much weight on the dailies, but we should still touch on them, yes. No. I'll, I'll let you take it away. <laughs> the dailies are fickle. That is the, the lesson to take away here. They're, they diverge pretty... Yeah, they do. They really do. So uh, the post-restriction, the, the big hits for the dailies are similar to um, what we've said for the other data sets. So the taxing decks or the workshop decks have made up anywhere from 40% down to 20% in the last few months of the dailies. Thus far in July, they're up at about 36%. So it's a similar representation, but there's there's pretty wide variance there. The gush, the what we have called the gush decks in the past, or the mentor decks plus the Delver <laughs> decks, basically have yeah. have in since in post restriction in May they peaked in the last few months at thirty four percent, but they've plummeted since then twenty percent in June down to fourteen percent in July and. The paradoxical outcome decks, conversely, that includes mentor. That includes yes, mentor. it does. Yeah. It's primarily mentor still, um, with a with a small part representation of Delver. But the paradoxical outcome decks have really picked up the slack. <laughs> so they've shown yeah. this crazy ascent starting in January, and they've gotten more and more and more and more popular, starting in the single digits up to the mid thirties, thirty five percent in June, and then they relaxed a little bit to. 26 or 27 percent in july but paradoxical outcome has actually been more popular than gush lately in the dailies so there's been a, so when we talk about mentor it's really misleading if you have in your mind the dac delve draw engine really there's been a substitution from dac delve gush to paradoxical outcome for a lot of these mentors that players. has become a greater percentage since the restriction definitely and so our paradoxical mentor deck was really the deck of the future. <laughs> it time. really was. We said it at the time and we were right, but for maybe not the right reason. <laughs> but I will say that uh, in my local metagame and a number of people I've talked to around the country, the Jeskai mentor lists still look, many of them still look a lot like they did pre-restriction. Many of them are just one gush lists with a merchant scroll and a mystical tutor and maybe one more removal spell. There's just, conceptually, there's not much difference in, in the majority of those decks. Like pretty much what I played at the NYSC yes. uh, Open that we did a, a whole podcast yes. about. So the lesson from the dailies, though, is that they show some of the same trends, but much wider variability for the gush decks and the paradoxical outcome decks of late. They still show... Yeah. They still show a very high percentage, though, of the taxing decks recently. In July, they're up in the mid to high 30s, 36, 37 percent, and that's that's way up from June. So, the the overall two deck metagame is still present, but 
lately it's been workshops and outcome in the dailies. <laughs> well, one of the things I think is so valuable about the dailies is not necessarily the aggregate data because Brian Kelly and Rich Shea play in like, I don't know, they seem to play, it's hard to tell, obviously, but they seem to play in a lot of yeah. dailies. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they, as a result, they 3-1 or 4-0 a lot of I think what's actually really valuable about the dailies is that you can see people experimenting with different yes. things. And I think that in particular is what is what you can see kind of emerging before it actually emerges. So I think that's what's cool about it. I, you know, I don't know. How you, but there are some specific decks I think I'd like to point out. Are we ready to transition, Kevin, or do you want to? Yeah, let's go ahead. So one deck. So, so this section, we're switching out of the section, the header, what the metagame is, and we're going to talk about some specific decks in the metagame. We're not going to cover Ravager Shops in much detail or Mentor, because we've spent a lot of time on that, uh, except to say the Ravager Shop decks, they don't, they tend not to play, Kevin, you and I both agree, they tend not to play um, Tanglewire anymore. That card is pretty much just... Right? Well, it's definitely uh, the lowest it has been in terms of representation in its home archetype in years. Right. So, so Kevin... Um, Let's start with one of these cool decks that I think is interesting. Hey, you've been really down. You've been a, a big bug bash <laughs> in the last couple podcasts. In our in our set review, you really one of the things that you were not high on was rent. Sorry, say that guy's name again. Remenap. Remenap. I don't think I'm ever going to get that. Remenap Excavator. I was very high on that card, but you, when I said I thought it could be played in the bug deck, you said, "Yeah, but bug is." <laughs> uh, Josh Pachusek, four zero a daily with. The Remunap. 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 Excavator uh, bug deck with Leovold. And that deck is pretty, uh, you know, it's just a typical Leovold Deathrite Shaman bug deck. He does have four standstill and a pernicious deed in Melrod. But he's got he's got the the Excavator in there to get, like, Wasteland and Fetchlands and all that stuff. I did, I don't can't find it now, but I saw another Excavator deck that had... Uh, that was bug, or you know, it was a control deck, but it also had a fast bond and like three excavators just to go <laughs> nice. nuts with wasteland strip mine. Nice. Yeah, it was really. I don't think you're legally allowed to refer to a Josh Potacek deck as typical or normal. <laughs> no, I don't think. I don't think. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. But but uh, but this thing, this card ex excavator is appearing. It's making. Yes, and this is exactly the kind of. I mean, we, we didn't specifically say land still very much in our set review, but this is definitely the sort of configuration that makes that card good. Right, right. Um, and I think we did, one of us did say that it is a superior card to land right before you're about to play a standstill than is a Crucible of Worlds, right? Much better to have right, a 2-3 creature than uh, an artifact. Exactly, there. exactly. We mentioned that and we made actually some, some, some hay about that. Um, what deck do you want to talk about next, Kevin? There's a lot of interesting decks to talk about. Uh, let's, let's let's save the Paradoxical Outcome decks for now, because we've got, you know, we'll get to that. Well, I, I might as well talk a little bit about Solemn Mentor, right? Yes, yes, please. You you had some success with it at a, your trial, and it's pretty fun. I mean, we, we did a lot of theory crafting in our set. How did it turn out? What was it like playing with Mystic Remora and... Uh, you know, the, the Solemn Sanctuary. So for those who are, aren't are clear or haven't seen the deck, what we're talking about is basically Blue-White Mentor subbing out uh, a, a number of uh, utility cards for four Solemnities from Hour of Devastation, four Dark Depths to combo with Solemnity, and four Mystic Remoras also to combo with Solemnity. So the idea being you can maintain a Mystic Remora indefinitely if you get Solemnity out, and also Solemnity forms a two-card combo with Dark Depths to create Merit Lage. 
I've been playing this in a mentor shell for the last two events and done quite well with it. Uh, a little better than I anticipated doing, in fact. One of the challenges the deck has is that Solemnity and Dark Depths by themselves are frequently mostly dead cards. Now, Dark Depths is entirely dead in the deck because the only way it wouldn't be is if you had it in play for a bunch of turns and removed all the counters manually. That's never going to happen. And I didn't even try once. Uh, Solemnity is 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 marginally <laughs> less dead because it has a disruptive impact on workshops, which we discussed in our set review. And because be, be, yeah, because, because if you get Solemnity down, Ballista then there many of their creatures like Ravager, Ravager. Ballista and Hangerback Walker can't gain their counters, and therefore basically are ineffectual entirely. Did and you, also Tangle Wire. Did you ever have a Did you have a game where you were against workshops and you accelerated it out? And it really disrupted I them. I did, but it's in, it's interesting that you put it. Did it disrupt them? No, because in I no. did that two times over the course of uh, my last two tournaments, and in each case, I immediately had dark depths as well. And oh. so, <laughs> the notion that solemnity was disrupting them was completely overshadowed by the notion that they were dead if they didn't stop it. Oh, oh, overshadowed by this giant 2020 right. yeah so but i haven't played against shops a lot I, I i should say i haven't played against ballista slash ravager shops a lot i have played against shops a lot but given that i live in southern michigan that means i'm playing against two card monty and the deck is pretty good against two card monty but nothing can be nothing nothing has a great shout, matchup against monty shout out shout out <laughs> yes ben perry. ben perry and mike rogers uh mike uh, won our la our last trial where I got third slash fourth place with the Solemn Mentor. So anyway, playing the deck is interesting. The deck has more dead cards than Mentor does. So I played four uh, preordains and I played two or three copies of JVP, depending on which list you you want to look at. And that helps to fix things a lot. I believe there are even better lists out there that reincorporate some Jace the Mind Sculptors, which I cut for for the sake of mana cost just to help fix those hands where you draw two dark depths and it's really disappointing. I will say that I won a little less than half my games with Merit Lage. So I would I would say 35 to 45% of my games, I don't have the data in front of me, but it felt like a little less than half were won with with dark depths, which feels good. Well, you, well you, is that consistent with your testing? I mean, I know you've done extensive yes, testing. Yes, that is consistent. You it, Even though there are, four, I was only playing three mentors, even though there are three mentors and four solemnities and dark depths, mentor is still actually the more reliable win con because, you know, solemnity dark depths is a two card combo. Even though you get one reliably, getting the other one is still slightly less reliable. The deck is... How was how was the Mystic Remora solemnity combo? Well, that's what I was just about to say is the deck is inherently good against the Mentor and most of the other blue decks in the format, especially the combo decks, because of four Monastery Mentors. I'm sorry, before of four Mystic Remoras. I had multiple games in these last two tournaments where I was able to string together multiple Remoras against Mentor opponents. Just play one yeah. on one, pay for it for one or two turns, and then play a second one and pay for that for a couple of turns. And invariably, that leads to, if, if you can play the second one while the first one's still in play, which is a great feeling, that leads to fighting counterspell battles with a Remora in play, which has you know, is, is one of the winning strategies for that. Always deck. productive, yeah. yeah. I I haven't this, gotten is, the Solemnity-Remora combo together very much because that usually necessitates playing a mid-game Remora after a Solemnity or playing a mid-game Solemnity the turn after you play Remora, right? So that doesn't happen nearly so much. You can't expect right. to have that combo very often. But the, but the Solemnity-Dark Depths combo is more reliable and appeared more often. It is. and Well, and the fact that you... 
it doesn't require any extra mana to do it. And I was surprised how easy it was to set up a situation where I would play Solemnity and play Dark Depths in the same turn. I would say maybe 60 or 70% of the time that I played Solemnity, I also played Dark Depths wow. in the same turn. Because of four preordains and the Jaces and, and all the sculpting you've got, it was not difficult to put together that two-card combo. But there were many other games where I had to... I had to give up on that combo in order to stay alive, right? And it means bottoming one half of it with preordain, even though you're holding the other half. That's a really bad feeling, right? But some, yeah. you, you just have to do it sometimes because you can't have too many slow dead cards in, in certain matchups. Overall, I would describe the deck as fun, less reliable than stock mentor, but occasionally much more fun to play. <laughs> <laughs> and it has inherent advantages Fair. over mentors. If you're in a meta game where there's lots of mentor, especially outcome, for for Remoras is where it's is where it's at. And I've been there many times with regular mentor before. And this deck is just a fun, different flavor on that. Interesting. Well, cool. I, I look forward to seeing what that deck can do. Are you going to continue to mess with it going forward? Uh, yeah, it's still on the it's still on my list of possible playable decks, and I do think there's a better version. Like I said, I cut Jace the Mind Sculptor for the interest of man in the interest of mana cost, but I think the fixing is actually more worth it than I thought. So yeah, I'm going to keep at it, try to improve it. What's next well, on your talked, list? Well, we well I I think we should just mention the Delver deck. We've talked about it a couple of podcasts before, but it's you know it it's kind of disappeared on the challenges, but it still pops up on the dailies and in paper. The Delver deck. And in paper, the Delver deck is del basically anchored by four Delver of Secrets, four Harsh Mentor, and three Eidolon of the Great Revel, which is, what would you call it? What's that enchantment that deals damage? Pyrostatic the, uh, Pillar is what you're thinking of. Exactly. Yeah. It's a it's a Pyrostatic Pillar. Um, and it's just, you know, a little, it's got less mana, but it does have four Wastelands, so it's got more tempo plays. I think that the deck is really targeted at the Mentor deck. That's my sense, Kevin. Mm -hmm. But it's probably weaker against, I don't know. I think that it's I think that it's yeah, Harsh Mentor, we've talked about this a few times. Harsh Mentor has it doesn't do much against shops. Yeah, it has an impact, but you kind of need to get into a narrow band of situations for it to really take over a game and right. it's just hard to get into that narrow band because even though they're going to take damage, Walking Ballista is still just really good against little creatures, so Exactly. Exactly. Well, the big story I think if we're ready to shift to it Kevin is the diversity of paradoxical decks. Yeah, definitely. So where should we start with that? Well, boy, I don't know, Steve. You alluded to one of the phenomena that is giving us some of this variety of decks, and that is the dailies. People like uh, Brian Kelly, especially playing experimental and diverse builds of outcome. That's where I've yep. seen some of the fun variety. But in my ex in my experience, yeah, most people who have played Outcome have monkeyed with two or three different versions of it. Yes, the, the by far the most I think it's it's a, by a, a statistically significant margin. The most popular version of the deck is the so-called Drain Tendrils deck, which it, the, the term Drain Tendrils is really a throwback. It is to the to the Intuition, A.K. <laughs> Dark Steel Colossus, what the Europeans and used to call the T1T deck, right? Yeah. That was called Drain Tendrils, and it just won with... It would play Yawgmoth's Will into a Tendrils. That deck, I mean, or what we used to call Gothslaver, right? Where we played four Intuition AK, four AK and three or four Thirst for Knowledge. Mm -hmm. That's essentially what this deck is doing. It's the modern version of that deck. It's got three Mana Drain, four Paradoxical Outcome, three Thirst for Knowledge, you know, and the black cards are Vamp Tutor, Demonic Tutor, Tendril, Yawgwill, Tinker, Time Walk, and then Blightsteel Colossus. So it's basically... That you know, it's like the throwback to the mid the mid aughts decks, like the gifts control slaver deck, 
right to the you know the the AK intuition deck where the your draw mi- spell is can double as just a game winning engine. Yes, yes, exactly. Right, and you you play a big will, or you can just go off with with paradoxical outcome. That's I think probably the biggest chunk. But then there's a ton of variants of that. So there's some that don't have tendrils but have Tezzeret and Key Vault, and they're called paradoxical Tezzeret. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. they but they have a lot of the same setup. And then there's you know some that veer in very wildly different directions. There's of course the paradoxical Storm combo deck that Reed Duke was playing at the Vintage Championship last year. That's got all the draw sevens, you know, and all that good stuff. And he was playing in the VSL play-in. That is pretty uncommon. Yeah. Um, and then you've got some of the like paradoxical decks that are just basically like academy decks like they've got a pair of defense grids uh maybe some blue counter magic but they've got like a ton of artifacts and uh, they really are built around academy they got like manamo a lot of them have four thought casts and see the synod and things like that and then the more interesting hybrids and they really are hybrids so they're very very difficult to classify are these decks that brian kelly is playing so <laughs> i i can't classify them i'm going to i'm just going to give you read off an example and then you can try and decide what you think this is so so here's one from july 13th it was reported on july 14th brian kelly brian kelly's played a lot of these lists actually this list is probably not as representative because he has three nights whisper so a better example is not that rather than the daily is the version that he played in the in the uh, um the challenge this past weekend you know, he seems to continually tweak and change a few cards here or there. But the the gist is this. This is the configuration he's, he's fallen upon. Two Jace the Mind Sculptor, two Monastery Mentor, one Snapcaster Mage, two Trinket Mage, Cataxian Probe, Merchant Skull, Ponder, two Preordained, one Time Walk, one Treasure Cruise, one Ancestral, one Brainstorm, one Daze, two Flusterstorm, four Force of Will, one Gush, one Hercules, three Mental Misstep, three Paradoxical Outcome, one Repeal, Black Lotus, one Chalice of the Void, one Engineer Explosives, Mana Crypt, Mana Vault, five Moxen, Two Sensei's Dividing Top, one Soul Ring, 15 Land, and a Monastery Mentor in the sideboard. It's basically, I think that's basically what he played at the NYSE as well. So he's he's gone um, full Brian Kelly is one way of putting it. Where he, <laughs> you know, like like he played uh, in the um, Vintage Championship in 2015. A lot of weird things going on here. I think I've seen seen him play this deck too with some Dragon Lords. I think one of these dailies that I looked at in the last couple of months, he had like three Dragon Lords deck. So there's a lot, and then there was a wow. version with Sylvan Library. So there's a lot of directions you can go because it's really a hybrid, right? You can go all in with Paradoxical Outcome by itself and just combo out, right? With Snapcaster and Time Walk. Or you can go all in on Ment, or it can go this Trinket Mage Jace route, right? So it's just like, it has a lot of different plans. Yeah, I don't. See he could play a pretty strong controlled game too. No question. I don't think that there's a lot of people playing his deck, but I have seen like Ray Robillard, who we've interviewed on our show in the past, actually playing almost a card for card version of this. Except I think he plays with Magus of the Future in in this in this list. So if you go through the dailies, you'll see a lot of lists like this. I don't know how you classify this. It's I. Matt Murray loosely class- classifies this as Paradoxical Mentor, which I think is probably the correct classification. But what we co- we thought was one of the key cards in Paradoxical Mentor was Mox Opal. He has zero Mox right. Opal right. and zero Chrome Mox. So, <laughs> so restricting Mox Opal would not deal with Paradoxical Outcome here, nor would restricting really any of these other cards. He has, he has two Mentors, so if Mentor's restricted, he go down to one. You know, he only has two Preordains. Anyway, you get the point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... Well, when we we were talking about this before we recorded tonight, but Brian Kelly, when he won Vintage Champs, only had two copies of Dig Through Time in his deck. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, so I, I did find another list of the Paradoxical Academy deck, as I'm calling it. It's very similar to what um, Paul Rietzel had played in the BSL. It's basically like a Dak, Jace, Tezzeret, Mere Battlesphere, Four Thought Cast deck with trans. He's got like 25 artifacts, including see the side knot, and in you know a few paradoxical outcomes. So it's mostly like an, a Time Vault key deck with like Thought Cast as the main mana engine. That that's appeared from time to time. Um, mm-hmm. There is one other deck I'll, I think it's worth mentioning. Uh, Sean Anthony has had some success with with Baral, Chief of Compliance, Gifts, and in Rich Shea, three one and four out a couple of dailies in a row with the, that deck. Kevin, we reviewed Baral some time ago. I don't remember precisely which set it was in, and I'm sure you'll tell me in a moment. But Baral Chief of <laughs> Compliance was a card that I thought was very playable. He reduced the instance, the cost of instants and sorceries by one, but most importantly, whenever a, play, a spell or ability you control counters a spell, you draw a card. Then you have to discard a card. But it's got a nice little built-in cycling mm-hmm. function that can really generate you some serious card virtual card advantage and also make you help you do some really cool things. Do you remember which set it was from? Oh yes, Kaladesh. It was from Kaladesh. So it's a recent, yeah. We thought that yep. was a, an interesting card, and and there's been some use. I know Sean is disappointed with his deck in the last couple of days, but you never know. You could see that come back at some point. So those are some of the cool decks that we've been noticing in the dailies and the challenges. And if you look through them, I'm sure you'll see some interesting things as well. Um, like, but but that's pretty much the range. Oh, you know what? I was wrong. Brawls from Ether Revolt. Yeah. <laughs> There is one other recent development that's not a new deck, but I alluded to it earlier, and I just want people to think about this, and that is the effect that a braid has on Jeskai Mentor vis-a-vis the top two decks in the format. A braid is a flexible removal card that can not 100% of the time, but a high percentage of the time, kill a Monastery Mentor. But it's also a way to pack more main deck shatters than control decks like to pack lately into a Jeskai shell. And w- I really think that... Have we seen a lot of a braid? How many? How often has it shown up? Well, it, sim- it simply hasn't had uh, long enough time to really shine yet. I'm, I'm looking at the um, I'm looking at the challenge results. There's an abrade, a pair of abrades main deck in in a, a blue moon deck that was 14th place, and then there was one in a Shahili sideboard that was at 21st place in the middle of the pack. But there just aren't a lot of abrades here, Kevin. No, according to tcdex.net, there's uh, two appearances in a daily, and my friend Aaron Katz here in southwest Michigan has uh, made top eight at the last vintage trial at RIW with it, and he had good results, and we've talked about it since then. I think the card is a long-term player in Jeskai and Grixis builds. Yeah. Clearly, it's jockeying for position with good cards like Swords and Dismember and Fatal Push, depending on the configurations and such. But I just want to point out that I think it's if workshops continue to be such a large percentage of the metagame, which all signs point to them continuing to be right. at a similar level, this card is a way for you to pack one to three main deck of bra- uh, sorry shatter effects into uh, a control deck with red and that could be enough to tip that matchup in your favor in the long term. Do you think that, that this this may be veering into our next conversation, but do you think that's going to have an impact on the presence of shops right now? If people start main decking it? Uh, the short answer is yes, but there are so many factors. So many not the least factors. of which, yeah. yeah, not the least of which is banner restricted policy. And I just, I think the short answer is yes. I think Braid is a long-term card that 
will see play in diverse number of archetypes similar to Dismember, though not in the same archetypes, of course, because Dismember see plays for different reasons. But it's a it's a powerful and flexible card that right now is good against the top two decks of the metagame and is not dead against other decks. It's still decent against Eldrazi, for example. So card has a lot of applications. And also, if various combinations of restrictions ever happen in the near future, the card continues to be good because shops and Eldrazi will continue to be good, I think. And if other control decks come up, like Bug, for example, the card's good at killing a Leovold. So uh, don't sleep on a Braid. I think it's here to stay. Cool. We'll be looking out for that card. Um, I did note that I saw it in, in the twenty on the challenge on the 22nd. There was an Abraid main deck and a Delver deck. So it, it, yep. that was the seems right at home in Delver. The, that was the only appearance it had though in, in the top thirty-two decks. So wow. Well, I it's interesting. I think people have actually been slower to adopt a braid than I would have expected. I'm not worried about my predictions for the set review or anything. I'm just interested that it hasn't caught on more. But we'll see. Kevin, this has been a long coming conversation. Mm-hmm. We've we've hinted at it, we've alluded to it. Uh, we said we would be disciplined about it and wait till three months after the restriction to analyze the restriction, in, and that moment has arrived. I think we've been reasonably disciplined. I mean, we can't help ourselves from talking <laughs> about it every episode, unfortunately. But you know, a reasonable <laughs> well, we amount of discipline. But we but we have not gone into kind of the full depth. So right. So let's let's kind of. This is our breakdown effect of the... So I'll let you reread the ju- explanation, justification. We'll take that apart and do the analysis. Go okay. Ahead. Let me just requote Aaron Forsyth here in the announcement that we covered so many months ago. In Vintage, the metagame has come to be a bit of a standstill as Monastery Mentor decks face down their main predator, Workshop decks. The primary issue seems to revolve around the prevalence of free draw spells for the Mentor deck that let it churn through its library for no mana while creating an abundance of tokens. We believe, by removing these free draw spells, and the perfect information that comes with Gataxian Probe, we will significantly weaken Monastery Mentor-based strategies. Hopefully, the move away from the free spells in Mentor decks will lessen the impact of the Workshop deck's various Sphere of Resistance effects, opening up the metagame. Four sentences, a lot of new predictions, and one key emphasis, which is on draw spells interacting with Mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't we start with the two predictions? So let's start with the last one, where they say we we hopefully the move away from free spells will lessen the impact of workshop decks, various sphere effects, opening up the metagame. The um, we did just present the post. Um, restriction vintage challenge metagame and we saw that shops are now 39 (laughs) percent right (laughs) so i actually went back and did the 10 vintage challenges before the restriction which was july 26 uh, 2016 through march 2017 try and give a kind of more direct comparison and kevin guess how many shops and you you may not know but but shops there was you know shops were 39 percent since the restriction what percentage of shop decks do you think were were before the restriction and the 10 vintage challenges before the restriction. If you haven't looked, what do you think? I haven't looked. I'm going to estimate 30%. 30%? Yeah. (laughs) It's a good guess. 
The actual answer was 16.25%. Wow. So they really weren't that much shops there before, were, huh? There were 13 shop decks out of 80 top eight decks in those 10 challenges. Wow. I way over 13. So, so, I mean, that was a good guess. I mean, shops are usually between 20, 25%, maybe even a little more. Now, if you, if you look at the metagame uh, percentages, uh, just from, um, just from, if you, if you narrow your focus a little bit to just this year, mm-hmm. that is before April, uh, January, February, March, and eight, and, and just January, February, March, in the challenges, here's the total percentage of taxing decks, meaning shops plus Eldrazi. Okay. Uh, it was 30. Six percent, sixteen percent, and twenty-eight percent. And then the mana drain open, they were thirty percent. That's clearly so, what I was thinking of. Yeah, that's what you're thinking of. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's totally a joke. I was just guessing. I, no, but you were you were right on if you were just looking at the lat at the three months preceding restriction. But um, you know, and if you look at the mana drain open, it, it even at the European champs shops twenty-three percent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, taxing rather with you add up. So you know, there is some incongruence between ten month period and a recent shops seems to have you know whatever with ballista. The question about that, but maybe a slight mutation. But that data suggests that regardless of what you whether you put the baseline at twenty five percent or thirty percent or twenty twenty three percent, shops are clearly increased since then. Yes. So absolutely. so so the. The prediction made by the DCI that shops would decline and open up the metagame or taxing would decline, that is proved to be empirically false. Definitely. So we can put a we can put a big false stamp on that claim. <laughs> <laughs> but what about this notion this is kind of, this was kind of a two part well, prediction because what about this notion of opening up the metagame? Yes. Yes, that is clear. So, so one thing that I did was I co- did not only that I look at the ten vintage challenges and just look at shops. I actually have a complete meta game breakdown. So the ten vintage challenges or the restriction, the total meta break- game breakdown was twenty five mental, thirteen shop, nine nine dredge, six white eldrazi, four dps, six controls pyromancer, three oath, two landstill, two doomsday, two paradoxical outcome combo, two delver, one mentor, one nihiri control, one blue white stone blade, and one leadable bug. That is a much more diverse meta game than the metagame since, if you just look at the challenges. Mm. Partly because shops and mentor together are less than 50% of the metagame. They're 47.5% of the metagame compared to 70% since. So the other decks obviously take up that other 22.5%. The gap between the first and second and second and third place decks is much closer, right? 25 mentor decks to 13 shops to 9 dredge. Compared, Compared to since, where it's... 34 shops, 26 mentor, and then just four stone blade. Yeah. So it's like the duopoly the has gotten far worse. Much far worse, exactly. And that was the whole reason that some people thought that um, Gush should be restricted. So let's go to the second prediction they made, right? The second prediction that they made was that, quote, we believe that the, these restrictions will significantly weaken monastery mentor strategy. That, and again, I am on record before the restriction, the day of the restriction. I said it was very counterintuitive. I said there's only three possibilities, right? Remember, Kevin? I oh, said yes. the possibilities are mentor could increase, men- mentor could stay the same, or mentor could decline. And I had online debates with people about this. I even had a conversation with Randy Bueller. He thought it was very, you know, just whatever. No one thought it was likely that mentor could either stay the same or increase. Now, I should have paid more attention and emphasized more the chance that it could have stayed the same because up until the last challenge, the number of mentor decks in the 10 challenges before the restriction and the 10 after are identical. Wow. 25. <laughs> 25. So if you had placed a bet that Mentor would stay the same pre and post up until this past weekend, you would have actually won. 
<laughs> vis-a-vis the challenges. <laughs> nice. But I did say on this podcast a couple shows ago, I said that I thought the probability, the combined probability that Mentor either increases or stays the same is greater than the probability that these restrictions weaken Monastery Mentor. And that has been the specific numbers are that, again, 30% of the metagame in the Vintage Challenges is Mentor since and before it was um, uh, it was exactly the same. Exactly the, exactly the same. So mentor is is in the exact same position. I don't know if that's true in paper, Kevin. But um, one of the reasons I said I thought didn't think mentor would be weakened, let alone remember they didn't just say weakened. They said that weakened significantly, right? Right. Is because as I said, mentor is so strong, it will. It's like a hermit crab. It'll just find a new shell, and that's largely what it's done. It's gone into paradoxical decks and blah blah blah. So I don't know if you have the data. And in, in even if it didn't, you know, if it only weakened marginally, it's still you know, whatever, um, <laughs> a huge percent, it's still, you know, essentially where it was before. To me, that suggests the restriction of Gush and <clears throat> Probe has basically had no effect on, on either Workshop or Mentor. I don't think that's really, it's really not deniable. Even if the numbers are a little less in paper, the, the starting numbers weren't that weren't as high on paper to begin with, right? Yes, the paper results bear out exactly the same thing. In the January through April up to restriction time period, Mentor in aggregate was 23% of top eight appearances. That was yeah, 152 that right. decks in total, 23%. In the mirror period since April, since restriction through yesterday, 22% out of 96 <laughs> decks. We have right. slightly we have slightly fewer results for this time period, mind you. It's 152 for the first part of the year, 96 since, but yeah. they're within 1% of each other. I mean, it's right. it's undeniable it's the that the, the desired effect has not been reached with regard to Mentor in paper either. There's, there's not even been a weakening, let alone a significant weakening. Right. So um, I think that that part of the DCI's prediction has can now be given a false. So let's turn to the reasoning of the restriction now. The emphasis is on three draw spells. I would suggest there's not a dime's worth of difference in terms of generating uh, tokens, which is what they talk about, between Gitaxian Probe and Preordain. Preordain, I think, even gives you a higher probability of finding a second spell to play, like a Mox, to generate a second token. Whereas Probe has a slightly higher probability of just drawing you into a mana source that doesn't generate a second thing. Or or doesn't get you to chain you into another spell that you can play right now. Like it might be a counter spell or something. I, I would like to agree with you with a different frame. And that is the cards that replaced two to three copies of Gush in many of these decks are frequently Merchant Scroll and Mystic yeah. Tutor. <laughs> yes. The effect being, yes, you're paying more mana for those cards because they cost one and two mana right, respectively. but they're super cheap to begin well, with. Well, but they're also increasing the likelihood that you're going to play Ancestral Recall, which is even yeah. worse than... Or Treasure Cruise or, or Dig. Or Time Walk, yeah. which are even worse than the, the, you know, the Gush or the the probe that they replaced so even though yeah okay so we're paying a little more mana for our spells but now we're more often playing our restricted cards because you made us put more restricted cards in our deck so exactly. the net effect is the deck hasn't gotten significantly less broken than it was before in fact it might be more broken in some ways yeah i, I, I they, wish we had stats and this is not possible but i wish we had stats on how much time walk is cast <laughs> in, in mentor <laughs> matches because when you add a merchant scroll and a mystical you're probably casting time walk more often Yes. And again, the sentence is, the primary issue seems to revolve around the presence of free draw spells for the mentor deck that lets it churn for its library for known mana cost while creating an abundance of tokens. We believe that removing these free draw spells will significantly weaken Monastery Mentor. The problem is, they put too much weight on the word free. Yeah. 
what's really the difference between probe and gush and they don't cost any mana and preordain or you know or mystical for these things or you know merchant school these these are really cheap spells the fact that they're free does not really make a dime's worth of difference preordain is better than probe i don't think preordain is the best unrestricted card in vintage right now that you can play with a monastery mentor in play we've talked about this before so they just gave way too much i mean this is why a couple months ago but even before the restriction you and i were talking about how preordain would be a very logical hit because a it's better than ponder in general which is already restricted b it's the best turbo xerox card that allows the turbo xerox decks to meet its land drop and c it's super synergistic with mentor if they really wanted to do, to nip or tuck the mentor deck and not hit mentor directly they could have restricted preordain but this is all besides the point <laughs> vintage is full of efficient restricted draw spells restricting a few of them even probe and, and gush is not going to stop Mentor from being broken. It's not going to stop people from playing Mentor with Sensei's Divining Tops, like like uh, Brian Kelly. And Paradoxical Outcome is, frankly, free a lot of the time. In fact, it's a mana generator a lot of the time, right? It generates. Oh, it yeah. actually nets you mana. So this notion of free is just... It's it's a thin reed to hold, a, to hold all of this weight, right? It doesn't really work. So this has been, in, from my perspective, an unmitigated failure... Of DCI policy, I hate to be that harsh, but they restricted the wrong card, in my opinion. And I want to draw our listeners' attention to something. Before the restriction, at the beginning of the month, Brian Kelly posted a poll on the vintage, uh, the 2400 vintage player Facebook, which Kevin and I were all members of, and many of our listeners are. I mean, 2400 people is probably more than the entire set of vintage players in the world. So my guess is my guess is that it's probably a pretty good representation of the entire vintage community. That's my guess, right? I think that's mostly reasonable. I mean, obviously well, it's not well, it's not everyone, but yes. It's not everyone, but it's very representative. Question, that's that's my my point. Yeah. Do you think it's representative? If you don't think it's representative, you think it's skewed in some way. It's not like it's a closed I mean, it's it's not you don't have to be, you know, you can request to join it and people have been invited to join it it's not like it's like a secret elite thing well, right it's like <laughs> I, I this, this is not a very point of contention but it is probably skewed more to the united states than the whole vintage community is that's fair but that's, that's fair. a minor contention to your larger point it definitely represents the community quite well so so on april 11th brian asked this this question he said he said should there be any changes to the vintage ban and restricted list and if so what 141 people said yes and 52 people voted no. In other words, 61.7% of the vintage players polled in that poll felt something needed to be done. Critically, however, there was a split among people what people wanted restricted. Now, there was a long list of people what people suggested because you, could, you anyone responding to this poll, you, me, Kevin, could add something, mm-hmm. right? So there was like 20 cards listed, including unrestrictions. But here's the thing, right? 141 people voted yes, 52 no, which is a total of I don't, you know, roughly 100 and you know, 93 players or some the votes, right? That's a lot of votes. That's a statistically significant sample. 119 voters, which is exactly 61.65%, 60 almost 62% wanted monastery mentor restricted. Okay, this was back in April 11th, mm-hmm. right? That's like almost, you know, like all but 20 people who voted yes wanted Monastery Mentor. Kevin, do you do you remember how many people wanted Gush restricted? Roughly the percentage? No, I don't. It was it was 37%, 36.8%, well, 71 voters. It was just over half. Yeah, half of the people wanted Mentor. Yeah. So the, the point is that the 
player base, the vintage player base understood what needed to be happen. It was mentor, not gush. So unsurprisingly, Sean Anthony, uh, a couple, a month and a half ago, posted another. And he said, are you happy? This is on June 18th. Are you happy with the gush restriction? Okay, here are the answers. 84, no. 37, yes. And then there was broken down by a lot of different, you know, spe- you know, like no, because mentor should have been restricted in addition to gush. And then, you know, no, because I think probe and mentor should have been restricted, not gush. There's a lot of that. The point is that the numbers that you had, the actual breakdown of that poll, which was taken two months after, over two months after the April poll, is a mirror image. It's almost a mirror image yeah. of the people who wanted mentor and not, not gush. So here's the bottom line. The vintage community in my opinion, had a clear preference. The DCI did not follow. They followed, they'd restricted two cards, in my opinion, that should not have been restricted. Not because they didn't necessarily eventually need restriction, but because the proper card that should have been restricted in April was Monastery Mentor. That's my opinion based upon the data we have now, my analysis of the polls that the vintage community has taken, and my understanding of the metagame itself. So that's my little rant there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so then the question is, where do we go from here? Right, right. So he, so let's let's pivot then from kind of analyzing what the effect of the restriction is to possible action. And we'll break it into two parts. Kevin, you and I will look at possible restrictions and then we'll look at some unrestrictions. Mm-hmm. Okay? All right. Moving on. So from my perspective, without unrestrictions on the table, there's three options. There is you do nothing, you restrict one or two cards, or we are looking at a parade of restrictions. <laughs> So let's 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 step back for a second, right? There have been now six restrictions, six restrictions since Cons of Tarkir. Probe, Gush, Treasure Cruise, Dig Through Time, Chalice, and Golem all targeted the same two problems, or really the same problem, yeah. the duopoly in this format. And in that time, essentially nothing has changed. <laughs> I have a complete list. I have gone through, gone. I've created a, a list of performance of Gush over time, and I have the percentages of Gush is a top as top eights. In essence, I'm I'm gonna put this more fully in an article form, but Gush was under fifteen percent of top eights for four years. From September this is this is part of the issue, right? Is that there's this narrative that Gush should not have been unrestricted. Gush was unrestricted for six and a half years. The first four years of its unrestriction, Gush averaged under fifteen percent of top eights. Actually under fourteen percent of top eights. It was ten and a half percent of top eights in the Q of two, the third quarter of 2014. After that, when Cons of Tarkir came out, it became 34%. Then Treasure Cruise was restricted, and it was 20%, 25%, 25%, 40%, 39% rather, 32.5%, 35%, 46% in Q3 2016, then 24%, 25%, and then 32.5%. Now, you probably didn't follow all that, but the point is that since cons, since the printing of Dig Through Time and Treasure Cruise, and then exacerbated by Mentor, Gush has basically been, except for one quarter, 25% or more of the metagame. And I would say, would you say averaging over 30% in that period, Kevin? Somewhere around there? It looks to average in the low 30s, yes. Low 30s, right. So, and that's through multiple restrictions. You've restricted four, you know, two cards in that period and essentially had almost no, you know, it had an immediate impact and, you know, Gush, when Treasure Cruise was restricted, Gush went from 34% to 20% of top eight. But then it went up to 25% again. And these and are then, it, these are quarterly numbers, mind you. These are these three are month periods. Numbers. So this is not just, right. this is not just metagame variants. And then on Dig the, Through Time was, re- on the dig short through term, time was yeah. re- Dig Through Time was restricted and actually Gush went up. <laughs> Gush X went up. And then and then actually, but part of the reason I think they went up is because Chalice was restricted too. Yeah. And then 
Gollum was restricted and Gush went up. Gush went from 35% to 46%, <laughs> you know? And then and then you restrict you restrict uh probe and um Gitaxian probe and Gush and the quote-unquote Gush decks according to the Q2 data I have just actually just April post restriction May, June and July are actually 28%. That is the decks that use one Gush and have a otherwise Gush shell are 28% of the metagame. So restricting Gush has has almost no effect. The difference is 32.5% to 27.5%. That's not very much of an effect. So here's the larger issue. We confront a, front a metagame that has essentially been the same since Cons of Tarkir, and we restricted six cards. And it's had very little impact. Now, my perspective is that I don't think that restricting Mentor is going to bring down shops. What is your position on that? Let's start. Let's start there, and then we can we can sort of dive into these bigger bigger options I just laid out. Uh, assuming that that is still one of the stated goals, which follows if the goals of their prior statement is still needs to be met, then no, I don't think that do restricting you, mentor will significantly reduce the presence of shops in the metagame. Do you, do you, in fact, every time that one of these things has happened, shops has increased. Shops increased after the restriction of treasure. Shops increased after the restriction of probe and gush. Why would we think that restricting a blue card is going to make shops go down? Mentor is one of the best things you can do against shops. There's the whole turbo Xerox theory that gush is propping up shops. That has not been borne out by recent data at at all. Nope. In fact, I think that if you restricted Mentor, I think I think workshops would increase their percentage. Yeah. That would be my prediction. I do too. And one of the key reasons which we've touched on before is the interaction between Walking Ballista and Young Pyromancer. Exactly. Because I believe that a lot exactly. of people would the fall back. The substitutes are so much worse. Yes, a lot of people would fall back on Jeskai, Delver, uh, Mentor, Hybrid shells. And those decks have gotten significantly worse with the printing of Walking Ballista. Right. So if we need to do something about shops, do you think something needs to be done about shops, Kevin? I mean, it's 40% of, of top eights in, in Magic Online challenges. That's an absurd amount of dominance. <laughs> do you think that's an issue? I do think, I, mean, it's, that's... I think it's an issue. And if you put a lot of weight on the vintage challenges, then, then we're getting close. It's been three challenges in a row. It's worth reinforcing that not but, only have we hit just under 40% for shops, but they've been at that same level for three consecutive yes. challenges. And their win percentage is exactly. And in paper, they're absurdly high too. Yeah. I mean, they won the NYSE. You know, yeah, they, they dominated the NYSE. They're half the, half the top eight. They continue to be not as high a percentage, but still the best performing deck in terms of win, overall. overall win percentage in paper. I think, I think it's reasonable to say that we are nearing a point where we do, but... In my but what do you do about shops? In my personal Why? opinion, not yeah. right now. Um, you think you should wait wait one more quarter to see if a braid makes much of a difference, or what do you? What's your thinking? I, Unpack that. I, I, yes, I think new printings are relevant. I think, I think we haven't had very consistent, you know, any one archetype performing across any of our metrics for more than a few months. That is to say, I don't think that workshops can maintain a near forty percent number for a, a full two month period. I think it's gonna. They're gonna regress but, because but, you, you still can target yeah. them. And I do no, that's, think that's very high. Yeah, yeah. I do think new printing. But what, help. what if it? But what if it's still you know above thirty percent? I mean, we have never. This is the high. Let me create a historical perspective. Yeah. We've never ever seen workshops at this large percentage of the metagame. Now, part of it might be because there is a ceiling on the number of people who can play workshops in paper. Yeah. That does not exist on Magic Online. Yeah. But taxing effect decks writ large 
are clearly over 30% of the metagame. And I don't think that, I don't see them going below 30%. I could see them not sustaining at 40%, but I just don't see them hitting like under 25%. And that's been your danger. That's been your red zone. Yeah, I, so, I agree. So, so what, you want to wait one more period and see what happens. That's what position is. It is, but I am also historically very, very laissez-faire when it comes to ban and restricted policy. <laughs> I haven't liked more than half of the last... But, but there's got to be there's got to be a, a a number at which you say enough well, is enough. I, right? I do so you make a point. I do believe forty percent is unhealthy. I I do believe that yeah. is that is that threshold if it if it's sustained. And right now we've hit forty percent for three weeks effectively online. Yeah, but we're not at forty percent in paper. In fact, we're barely at thirty percent for shops. It goes up over thirty percent if you, you if you make it you, add a, you know a thorn category. <clears throat> so. Oh, that's fair. So, so your your position is let's wait on shops. But we're my but position ask, is we're very close though. I understand. So here's the next question: If we have to take action on shops, what is the action? I think you have to just restrict workshop. Whoa! I don't think. Whoa! I don't think you can dance around <laughs> the issue with restricting Thorn. I think that just hurts the Eldrazi decks more than it does shops. And I, I, we I, we have danced around yeah. so many issues with restricted policy throughout history. So, so. So let's look at the cards that have been restricted because of Workshop. Certainly Trinisphere, yep. certainly Chalice, and certainly Golem. Yep. Anything else? Just those three, right? Yes. So, so we're, and those are all caused by Workshop. There's, I mean, well, you could Chalice argue that still, Gush was restricted Chal- because of Workshops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so I don't think I would. I, I, I certainly see your logic. I think there. I think that it's a legitimate position to take if you know. Three months from, you know, whatever, even now. But I would like to see one more attempt to try and rein in workshop before we restrict workshop. Okay. Partly because I think the presence of workshop increases the diversity, strategic diversity in the format. And while I don't, I think restricting workshop would not kill thorn decks, I think it's very clear that tribal Eldrazi and white Eldrazi will continue to be just fine. In fact, white Eldrazi would become the de facto mud deck, so to speak, yeah. because... You know, because it 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 doesn't need workshop, and it's then the main thorn deck. But I would still like to see workshop exist. I don't know how to clip. The problem is I don't know how to clip workshop's wings. I think, and I wouldn't do it with thorn. I wouldn't do thorn because I thorn actually incentivizes cards that want the format to play, which are creatures. I think the card I would restrict is sphere of resistance. Mm-hmm. The other alternative is ancient tomb. But the problem with ancient tomb is then you just neutered white Eldrazi. And you've neutered the tribal Eldrazi. So I would prefer to restrict Spear of Resistance and see if that does the trick. Interesting. That would be that would be my preference. Well, I can certainly see that position. Um, I am wary of new printings just continue to, t- continuing to pile on yes. like they have in shops yes. over the course of the last four or five years, um, or longer, honestly. But I still I think that's a reasonable position if you're willing, which I know you are personally, if you're willing to continue to reevaluate, right? Well, I actually think that the DCI would be totally within its rights to just restrict, restrict Sphere now. I don't think they actually need to wait on that. But I do understand your position that you'd like to wait. I think workshops have reached a point where I don't see them. I just don't, I don't agree with you. I don't think they're going to decline below 30 some percent. And I think that it's not, it's the combination of, of both unhealthy levels of, of frankly dominance plus the noxious gameplay. <laughs> 
and I and I think I think workshops will be just fine with sphere just as restricted. I think they'll, still think there'd be a t- tier one, but I think you need to knock them below thirty percent. I just think you have to. I just think it's such an awful deck type to be dominant in the format by far the best deck that's so problematic that I would probably restrict sphere resistance. Okay. I think that's... And now, now the problem with that, of course, is that you make paradoxical outcomes so much better and preordain and all the other stuff much better. But I, I just think it, I think it makes workshops more in line with the Thalia decks. So I think there'll be more incentive to play Thalia and stuff like that, and null rods, frankly. Well, that's that would be an interesting side effect, is if a sphere restriction actually increases the portion of taxing decks that are represented by Eldrazi. That would be a good outcome, yes. I think. Exactly. Me too. That's exactly why I would want to do that. Yeah. And I think your point is also well made that um, restricting workshop would tilt that teeter-totter way too far in the other direction. I think you would immediately see uh, White Eldrazi become the de facto thorn deck. And I guess the the mud decks, the mono-brown decks, so to speak, would continue to be playable, but, but they would probably diminish pretty significantly. Yes. So so that's one issue. The other issue is what about just the strength of these mentor decks? Now, uh, obviously mentor is going up and down, um, but it's clear that the restriction of preordain in, in gush has not done really anything about mentor. You mean probe so they, in gush, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, pro right. If so they've wanted to do something about mentor, is it time to restrict mentor itself? Not because of shops, but because mentor should have been restricted in April. What's your <laughs> what's your position on that, Kevin? Well, it's it's really difficult to draw up a a policy that has that phrase we should have done this before and, right. and have it be a policy statement. But you could still take a whole bunch of the language from their prior explanation and just take out the parts that were ill conceived, so to speak, you know, the free right. spells parts and use a lot of the same language, right? And then just conclude that mentors the card that has to be restricted right that that cutting off these other spells was was not good enough mentor continues to be an unhealthy portion of the metagame use the whatever language you want at that point because it's pretty clear that the goals they had in mind despite the their incorrect targeting the goals they had in mind are still viable goals i guess right so and i I, but i also think you but but similar to the workshop versus sphere discussion you could take another stab at getting rid of Mentor's dominance by hitting Preordain. What percentage decline do you think restricting Preordain would have on Mentor? Percentage decline? So um, it, so I let's think, just assume Mentor is like, yeah. let's say like a paper, 23%. What percentage decline, what percentage of people would switch to a non-Mentor deck? I mean, to a, you know, a. it's hard to say non-Mentor, but like a... Right. No, that's true. If you just restricted preordain, what percentage of people would mentor players would switch to a non-mentor deck? If we're talking about not restricting, I would mentor. say I would say between five uh, percent plus or minus. Yeah, I think a few. that's probably right. That yeah. would see. This is this is that's exactly what I predicted would have happened if you restricted preordain in April too. Is yeah. that you'd have a, not, a statistically significant, non-trivial, but not large decline in mentor as well. And and that's why I I argued. See, this is this is the key point. I think they should have restricted Gollum. They've gotten two things out of order. They should have restricted <laughs> Gollum instead of Chalice and then seen right. the effect. They should have restricted Mentor instead of Gush and seen the effect. What's happened is that um, we've seen the effect now. We know the effect of the restriction of Gush on Mentor. And it's nothing. But I believe that if you had restricted Gush, I believe that a minimum 20% of the Gush players, uh, sorry, if you had restricted Mentor, I be- believe at a minimum 20% of the Gush players would have switched to a non-Gush deck. And I think it would have actually been larger than that. I think it would have been somewhere between a third, probably around a third or more. So I think the 
whereas the restriction of mentor of, of gush has had no effect on mentor. So just to say that again, because it's a little bit of a tongue twister, the restriction of gush has had no diminution on the effect uh, effect on mentor. But I believe that had mentor been restricted, about 20% of gush pilots would have, between 20 and third, and if not more, of gush pilots would have switched to a non-gush deck. So I think it's very likely that restricting mentor would have brought gush down to an acceptable range. But here's the mm -hmm. here's the problem. The conversations that we have are binaries. It's like we either do something or we don't. Obviously, that's the option that we're confronted with. But what's pro what's problem about it, problematic about it is that we we don't add a matter of degree. If we ask ourselves not whether there's a problem and whether we we should take a restriction to solve the problem, whether this here's the issue. It's not whether an action advances the uh, towards a solution or not. It's what precisely is the effect that action will have. If you had asked that, if the DC had asked that question more granularly, right? What will be the effect on gush decks of restricting mentor? What will be the effect on gush decks of restricting preordain? And what will be the effect on mentor of restricting gush? And then actually trying to game that out in mm -hmm. specific percentages, we would have had a much more nuanced and productive discussion, I think, than the discussion we had, which was that there's a, I'm, I don't like the metagame. Gush is too dominant. Let's restrict the best card, you know, the card, you know, let's restrict Gush itself, as opposed to if we restrict Preordain. So what is the actual threshold level of acceptant, acceptable Gush decks? If the level of acceptable Gush decks is 22% or 20%, it's possible that restricting Preordain would have got us below that level without having to restrict Gush itself. So you see what I'm saying, Kevin, you're with me. Um, yeah, I do. And um, at this point... What do you think should point, happen? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it kind of makes me wonder how much stomach we have for the interaction of restriction and unrestriction, right? Well, we'll get to unrestrictions, but I, I uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm not talking about, I'm talking about unrestriction of cards. We're already talking about though, not well, new cards, I don't right? Think we're putting like for example, I don't think we're putting the unrestriction of gush on the table right now. No, yeah. I don't think, I don't think so. We are, I don't think we are, but let, let me use a counter example. If you restrict workshop, can you unrestrict Lodestone Golem? Yes. See, that's what I'm talking about. Yes. So I'm wondering, I mean, what happens if we restrict Mentor right now? In a couple of months, are we going to be okay talking about unrestricting Probe, right? Is anyone yes. worried about Probe if Mentor is restricted? No, it's no, a joke. No, of course not. Yeah. So I think there are, when you ask me what my opinions are, my opinions are I'd, I'd like to take a longer term view of this and try and correct some of the wrongs that have been done so over the course so of the last few policy changes but it's clear that this mentor deck is too good i mean it's above baselines for restriction well and i'm and i that's okay so i'm not recommending making multiple changes at once right, right. if we restrict mentor i would be doing so with the hope that we could take probe off the list and then in, and then maybe in, in some the other future. cards and down the line right but, exactly. But I, I would too. But the question I'm asking you right now is, would you restrict Mentor right now? At the end of August, there's going to be a restriction. If you were the DCI, would you vote to restrict Mentor? No. Because? <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't think it passed the threshold of problem before. And since things okay. have basically not changed, I still feel that way. Well, you're in the definitely in the minority of the people polled. I... I think the restriction of Gush has had no effect on Mentor, and Mentor still remains a problem. So I would restrict Mentor. If I were the, I do think, I do think that doing so would open up the metagame, to use their phrase. Yes, I would restrict. If I was the DCI, I would restrict Sphere of Resistance at the end of August, and I would restrict Monastery Mentor. Those are the two cards I would restrict. I would seriously. I wish they had done that in the correct order, and then Gush maybe wouldn't have to be restricted. And maybe they should have restricted yep. Preordain instead of Probe. You know, that would have yeah. been the better route. If 
I do think it is an option to restrict ordain instead of mentor if they want to keep mentor around, but I don't really think that's a, a wise choice. I think mentor I, I, doesn't really do good things for the format right now. But the, the only reason I would not restrict mentor, the only reason I would not is because restricting mentor is going to make workshops so much better. So that's <laughs> yeah. if they don't also do something with shops, it's going to be a nightmare for the next three months. It's going to be an unmitigated disaster. You're going to be 50 or 60% shops, you think? Well, on Magic Online, I think it's going to be between consistently between 40 and 50 is my guess. Yeah, on paper, I guess. That, yeah. Yeah. And paper. I don't think 40 is the new baseline. So to, yeah. to use my prior discussion point, I think you're right. It would be, we become more consistently 40% yes. and, and higher. Yes. Um, that That's my prediction. That would be my prediction. I, I, I just think it's going to be a real problem. I don't think you can just restrict Mentor. I think you have to do something about shops if you restrict Mentor. That's where I come down. But here's the, here's the issue. Here's the issue. You restrict Mentor and you restrict Sphere. And then three months later, we're still in the same position. What then, Kevin? We have a... Like, well, then we restrict... Per, then we restrict preordain and workshop. How far do we continue down this? And then you keep weakening decks. Eventually, par paradoxical outcome is going to be restricted because it's going to surge. You know, where is the end game for this? <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, what you, what, you know, I mean, I'm laughing because I'm with you and I have been for years well, already. Well, here's the issue. This was not a problem before cons. Cons was actually the turning point in vintage. And then it is no question about it. And from my perspective, we've been dealing with a problematic duopoly format since cons. And I just yeah. don't know. It seems to me what's happening is kind of a slow motion parade of restrictions that is just a decompressed version of what happened in 1999 with Academy, when ultimately in one restriction, they restricted 18 cards. We've seen six yeah. restrictions dealing with this problem, and, and we're, and not, we're done. not done. So it's going to it's gonna be, you know, it's going to really de bring these, quote unquote, the, the Delve DAC engine and workshop, we're going to see over 10 restrictions before this is all done. And it's going to have collateral consequences to like restricting paradoxical outcome and things like that. So I guess yeah. the question I have is, do we continue on this route or do we do a big rethink? Do we rethink because <laughs> I'm, and that's a serious question. And I don't just mean a rethink. I, there's a, a, I don't just mean, you know, do we stop restricting? What I mean is, do we think of another approach? Do we think about maybe banning cards like the Delve spells? Do we think about maybe some radical unrestrictions? Those are two possible rethinks, right? Rethinks. So I want to, I want to <laughs> get your opinion on that and then shift to unrestriction. You said a lot. We are paying the price for the first time in kind of a long time for the fact that uh, R&D does not develop for eternal formats. Right. Vintage and Legacy and Modern have all paid the price for the Delve mechanic as it was applied in cons. Those two cards and then a whole bunch of interrelations with other cards um, have kind of ruined formats. But <laughs> those other two formats ban and we do not. Vintage right. is on a vintage is on a trajectory that it has been on for years, but it's we've made more motions in the last year or two. We're on a trajectory toward a singleton format. Well, that's yeah. In, at least in the non in, in the blue decks, basically in the big blue decks. What you're talking and, about is a critical mass restricted list, and that's something yeah. we've never actually had to confront. Although there have been times where it seemed like it was a possibility, a realistic near term possibility. That is. There were times where we had talked in the past, does 
the restriction policy tool lose its power? Does it lose its ability yeah. to actually make a difference? Because at some point, you essentially just have a restricted list that could be a dominant deck. And at that point, the you know the accumulated printings of 25 years mean that restriction, yeah. you need a, a different solution. And that solution in other formats has always been banning. And in fact, yeah. historically cards were banned. There are three cards that have been banned in, in type one vintage for power line. That's no longer the case today. And, and justifiably so, because those cards don't need to be banned. But if the format were ever to hit a point that you describe where, and let's just make the extreme version of this, of this scenario, where you essentially yeah. have a deck that there have been a ton of restrictions to try and curb it, and they've been totally ineffective. And you essentially have a singleton deck with counter spells and unrestricted lands, and it's still the dominant best deck. At that point, at yeah. that point, a banning would make sense to me. Now, we're not at that point, but I do think we're on a path that could potentially end up that way. I agree. There is one other mechanism, though, that you or, you or I cannot really advise upon, and that is design. Yes, you mentioned that one if as there well. Were a yeah. and you if there were a superior answer to Monastery Mentor right now, from a design standpoint that multiple decks could play and was not inherently, uh, you know, its own kind of win condition. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is a way you can address the issue. And I would point to the fact that we have, unre we currently have unrestricted thirst for knowledge as an example. Yes. Not of answers so much as how this pattern can be, can propagate itself in a long-term way. If your banner restricted policy in conjunction with your design allows for a kind of circular adding and removing of cards from the restricted list. Right. No one was very worried. I mean, okay, some people were very worried, but by, you know, the majority of people were not very worried when Thirst was unrestricted because the metagame has evolved. And it's entirely possible that there is some future point where we could unrestrict Treasure Cruise <laughs> and it would not be, it would not be the problem that it is right now. If that point included some reliable way for most archetypes to fight the graveyard, yeah. right? What if every deck had had five yeah. to ten rest in peace variants in it? <laughs> you know, sure, so design sure. can address these issues, but I'm not sure how much we want to trust yeah, it's, design to fix yeah, this problem. Yeah, I mean, people, a lot of people have seemed to resort to that conclusion. Can't we just design our way out of this? I remember years ago, Chapin had like a bunch of cool design. He wrote a vintage article where he had a bunch of cool designs. And the, the reality mm -hmm. is the there's just no easy way to design cards for vintage that doesn't, there's no easy way to design cards that for vintage that are really tailored at solving metagame problems. It's it's not yeah. difficult to design a card that is playable in vintage. What's difficult is to design a card that solves a metagame problem in a clear way, is tailored to that problem, and doesn't also create other problems. It's a very, very <laughs> challenging thing to do. It's a complex it's a very, system. Very no complex system. So I And it's a system that we're constantly trying to monkey with by having conversations like this about what do we do right. from a banner restricted right. policy, right? So bef before yeah. we go to unrestrictions, I just want to point out one other, one other piece of information I've done, which is that there have been 14 restrictions since 2003 of those restrictions were cards that were not legal in the, they were basically preemptively restricted. They didn't see actual play. Those were Time Vault, hmm. which was un, which was errated and then immediately restricted, Personal Tutor, 
an Imperial Seal. So there were 11 cards that were restricted since 2004 that actually saw play. And I very briefly just wanted to actually give you the numbers, the percentages of those cards in the top eight metagame in the months prior to their restriction. So you can kind of get a sense of the baseline, Kevin, and see if that changes your view. Okay. So Trinisphere was tw- Trinisphere was restricted at the end of it was it was announced March first and took effect March twentieth two thousand five and the two months before its restriction it was twenty six point two percent of the metagame wow not <laughs> it, not exactly dominant but you know not a weak performer performer either Gifts Ungiven was restricted on June twentieth two thousand seven and it was eighteen point three percent of top eight wow. In, wow, that deck was so good and only 18%. Well, there was, that was a very, very diverse metagame. Remember, Pitch pitch Long and the Long decks and the Stacks decks were all, also, an Oath was very heavily played. I don't have the numbers on Ponder, but I have the numbers on Brainstorm, Flash, Gush, and Merchant Skull, which were all restricted on <laughs> June 20th, 2008. Let me start with Gush. Actually, let me start with Flash. Flash was 8.63% of top eights in the two months for it. It was 13.24% in the four, four months before the four, wow. the four, the fourth and third month it was restricted. It was 13% of top eight. So wow. flash was under 10, you know, basically 10% of the metagame top eight metagame was restricted. Gush, <laughs> Gush was 25% of top eights in the two months before it was restricted in 2008. And it was tw- 23.5% in the four months before Merchant Scroll was 40.4% in the two months before it was restricted. And Brainstorm was 56% of top eights in the two months before it was restricted. So yeah. just so far, do, <laughs> just so far, do you see any any baseline numbers? I mean, it's all over the place. Well, Trinosphere was 26, Gifts is 18%. It, yeah. There doesn't seem to be a pattern, but it does. Basically, so far, the only card that was really under 20% besides, you know, Gifts was just about 20% was Flash, which... Which is yeah. not was not necessarily restricted for dominant, right? Not at all. Thirst was restricted on June nineteenth, two thousand nine, and in the two months before it was restricted, it was forty five point six percent of the metagame. Yeah, forty five percent. Treasure Cruise was restricted on January first, and the three months before it was restricted, it was thirty four percent of the metagame. So Treasure Cruise are, I think, what are paradigmatic example of a deck that's a card that surged and then needed restriction was only 34 percent dig through time was restricted on september 28 2015 and the three months before its restriction it was 43.75 percent of top eights that's yeah i mean it was essentially 10 percent more than treasure cruise but here's the difference it was mostly a two or three of, and I did not count decks that were that only played it as one of too. So there was, oh, yeah, really? because be, why would I count a oh, card that was one wow. of? Because you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So there was even even That's... more, right? Because you're, yeah. Wow. There was a, a number of one ofs that weren't even in that in that. So it was probably well over fifty percent. Chalice of the Void was restricted at the same time, and Chalice was twenty six point six percent of top eight. So if you just okay. look at blue, the let's just look at the blue draw engines, right? Starting with gifts and by the way we go back to 2003 when gush was restricted it was about 36 37 percent of top eights so if it was restricted is 36 37 percent in 2003 gifts was 19 18 19 percent in 2007 then gush was 25 percent when it was restricted in 2008 brainstorm was 56 percent merchant skull 40 percent thirst was 46 percent treasure cruise 34 percent dig through time 44 percent and so that's that's the blue draw spell. So the blue draw spells almost always get restricted when they're it looks like basically 30 
not 20%. What? Not 20%. I was because that no, that's definitely not true, because there's a lot of other blue spells that have been 20%. I was gonna say basically oh. 30. If you get to 34%, I think you're basically gone if you're a blue draw spell. <laughs> now, gush is the problem. Gush, gush itself, and when it was restricted la the last time, this this past um, April was 32.5%, and then when it got restricted. That was the last one. So it was, and again, that's with the DAC Delve engine, you know, and Mentor, and Mentor boosting it. So, but it, the quarter before it was only 25%. So I... Do you know what, uh, what? you know what Thorn of Amethyst is in paper for this no. year? 33%. There you go. And we could talk about Mental Misstep, which I, I don't think restricting Mental Misstep would have any effect whatsoever on workshops. I think it's a non-starter. No. So if, if they do, you know, anyway, so, you know, if they're really trying to solve workshops, you, I think you need to hit something in workshop. So if I was the DCI, I would restrict the sphere and uh, mentor. And if you were the DCI, you wouldn't restrict anything. You would wait you're, 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 you would wait, wait on shops, but you do think something probably needs to be done if it's the same three months from now. And you would restrict yes. Mishra's workshop itself. Interesting. Yes. Okay. Anything else to comment about restrictions before we turn to unrestrictions? No, I think... Unrestrictions is a really fascinating topic that maybe we should talk about, you know, some cards we like and have candidates, but I'm also really interested to know how it would affect the current duopoly, yes, if at all. That's the reason we bring it up, right? The idea of unrestricting a card to shake up the metagame and diversify, not just because... So there's ostensibly you unrestrict cards that no longer deserve to be there. But actually, unrestriction is like a bullet in the chamber. It's a tool the DCI can do to stimulate metagame diversity, much like the Federal Reserve can reduce interest rates to stimulate economic growth. This is I'm not just making this up. When Gush, when Gush <laughs> was actually unrestricted in 2010, they specifically said that. They said that... Um, they said that... Uh, we would like to visit whether Gush can be a healthy addition to the diversity of the format if you can play for Gush, but not for of either Merchant School or Brainstorm. So they, and they also before that, they said um, that uh, basically it is not clear that the Gush can fit in the best performing decks of late, such as Jace the Mind Sculptor or Mishra's Workshop decks. The Jace, the Bob Jace decks and the Mishra's Workshop decks were the best performing decks. So unrestricting thirst, um, unrestricting Gush, explicitly a consideration or a factor in its unrestriction was that it would not be used by the two dominant decks in the metagame and therefore would diversify the metagame. And that's exactly what happened. And they also unrestricted thirst and they unrestricted gifts explicitly to promote diversity and they unrestricted burning wish for the same idea. So the idea of unrestricting cards to try and diversify the format is not new. And in fact, in 2010, they said, we will try this experiment again, if it, even if it doesn't work. We want to try unrestrictions to diversify. So I think we're on safe ground in seriously debating possible unrestrictions with the goal of promoting metagame diversity. Absolutely. So Kevin, which card would you like to start with? Well, let's see. I have a, a pet unrestriction that I want to save for okay. last, but a safe one that I think would garner... well. This is not even going to shake up the metagame because it's so yeah. weak. And that is Imperial oh, Seal. Oh, Imperial Seal. I thought you were going a different direction. <laughs> no, I think the Imperial Seal is barely played in a fringe deck that is Dark Petition right. Storm. And unrestricting it would basically lead to more fringe decks. It does not, um, it does not power up Storm decks to a great degree. It is... <laughs> 
It has minor synergy with things that are currently played. I mean, it's minor synergy with paradoxical outcome, for example, but it is so weak to the defensive capabilities of the format right now, specifically mental misstep and fluster storm that, and it's inherently card disadvantageous such that I don't think it would even see significant play. I think that you might see some storm combo decks, drain tendrils, couple of decks opt to play a second one or a third one, maybe. So but it would barely have an impact, I think, at this point. If Gataxian Probe were unrestricted, would you still have the same conclusion? Um, I'm trying to think. It's more risky, but I would still have the same opinion. I, I think this card is just is just far too weak. Of, and yes, it means you have access to Black Lotus more often, but that's a two-card combo, and any two-card combo should be good What if Mental things. Misstep is restricted? Does that change your, your analysis? Um... No, because the hypothetical post misstep restriction format, I think, simply has more and different one mana counters in it. That's fair. It has more spell peers. Yeah, I mean, the passing the turn. Uh, look, Vampiric Tutor, I think, is probably the possibly the best tutor in Magic. I think it might even be better than Demonic. <laughs> it's just so insane. But the passing the turn and the inability to play it in your upkeep, you know, exposes two big yeah. problems. One is that if you play Imperial Seal, your opponent can really do something to you in the meantime. They can shuffle your library they can fate seal you you're also stuck with that plan which may be a bad plan by the time the turn comes back to you the other thing yeah. though is that imperial seal was used in ad nauseum tendrils with four chrome mocks i think it would be an automatic inclusion in that deck i'm not saying that deck would be suddenly good but um yep that's a good, it's home, a good home and i i'm a little <laughs> yep. worried about that kind of card because it's just too easy to assemble two card combos with imperial seal and one black mana like dark petition like not dark petition but like dark depths I would probably not be in favor of unrestricting Imperial Seal until I had really thought that through carefully, and more importantly, mm -hmm. until we'd full, fully and finally resolved the future fates of both Mental Misstep and Gataxian Pro. <laughs> well, that's fair. There are a lot of interlocking pieces there. So how about you? What candidate well, do you Well, I have? actually think the safest card on the bed and restricted list is clearly Yawgmoth's Bargain. So mm -hmm. let me lay this out for just a second. Yawgmoth's Bargain was restricted in a giant wave in 1999, and... Uh, defensively so at the time, I think. The problem with Bargain is that we have a ton of Bargain substitutes right now. So we have, at 5 mana, we have Dark Petition, which can get Necropotence for 5 mana, and then and or Yog will We have Ad Nauseam, which is essentially Bargain you know, itself when designed around it. And we have, most importantly, Gristlebrand, which is 2 more mana, and it's essentially Bargain. That is a creature. But it's a... But it's a bargain that you, you can, can oath, oath for and attack and deal damage and has lifelink. So it's it's yep. the issue from my perspective is that you have effects that are essentially good enough that you can you know ritual them out right now that are bargain level power and you have um, a card that you can show and tell into play that is essentially better than bargain, which is Gristlebrand. So I do not see any reason why bargain should be restricted. It's not show and tell. It's not dark ritual into into bargain. I think bargain can be very safely unrestricted. The downside to bargain is that it actually doesn't do anything. I don't think that it'll actually boost any deck. Maybe we can make a deck that has like two or three bargains, but and maybe, but I just don't see that being. Look, here's the here's the goal, right? If we want to diversify the format, one thing we could do to diversify it is try and get like a dark petition storm deck back into the you know 10% of the metagame. Right now. That deck was completely neutered by the restriction of Pro. Maybe Dark Rituals can come back if Bargain's unrestricted to a marginal, a non-marginal percentage of the metagame. That would be the objective of unrestricting Bargain. And or because it just doesn't belong there. It's terrible. So 
we're not terrible, <laughs> but just you know, it's just not very good in this meta game. Inferior. Yeah, it's inferior to Gristlebrand, and you know, maybe someone can build a, a a DPS deck that has two bargains and the deck is better. You know, or three bargains and the deck is slightly better. Maybe I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I agree with you. If you want to ritual something out right now, you've got Dark Petition, you've got Ad Nauseum, you've got Necro and, and Will that are restricted. But, but you can even you can even ritual out Gristlebrand. It happens all the time. Yeah. Well, but if you're if you're designing a deck that's going to ritual out something, I think you're going to choose those other cards before bargain, you choose because bargain. they're five mana. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And if you're planning a deck that's a show and tell deck, that deck I think has been demonstrated that it's superior as either an Omnitel deck. Or, Oath with Gristle. Uh, an Oath yeah. deck. Yeah. And you wouldn't be using Bargain So I just don't case. think... I This this falls under the heading of give people more options and clean up the list. And I don't think there's really... I think there's very little risk of anything bad happening right. because of it. I agree with you. If it's playable, then fantastic. The next card on the list that I think is actually a better chance of promoting diversity and falls under the header, maybe the DCI should just try it, is unrestricting Windfall. Now, let, let me nice. lay this out just a little bit. Number one... The mulligan rules make Windfall a lot weaker than the other draw sevens. So, you know, people mulligan a lot more aggressively these days than when Windfall was printed. I think Windfall is clearly the weakest of the draw sevens, although someone could try and make the argument for Jar. I think the reason you can't unrestrict Jar is because of Bizarre and Welder, among other things. <laughs> um, I think Jar is just absurdity in that kind of environment. But Windfall, I think, is the weakest. And Windfall suffers from, I think, recent printings in a pretty severe way. Number one, Windfall is really weak in environment. Draw sevens in general, symmetrical draw sevens, have been weakened by the presence of cards like Mindbreak Trap and Mental Misstep. Because when you draw seven, mm -hmm. you're not now your only out isn't Force. You can play all these other free spells that, that aren't narrow, like Misdirection. So... I think that Windfall suffers big time, or bigly, to quote someone, <laughs> from the the presence of Mindbreak Trap and Mental Misstep. So assuming Misstep remains unrestricted, I think Windfall would actually be fairly innocuous. But here's the upside. What I really like about Windfall, where I think it could help the metagame, is Windfall is really good at Hercules Recall against Shop. So you could design, design yeah. a deck where your Hercules Windfall, and my god, if they don't have Ravager in play... You could essentially becomes bargain if you can play win if you can play Hercules on your turn, right? The other thing about Windfall is I think it's inferior to Paradoxical Outcome in general. You're not going to play Paradoxical Outcome and Windfall together, I don't think, for the most part, because you don't want a paradox when you you don't want a Paradoxical Windfall. You want to replay all your mocks and then Paradoxical again. Yeah. So they're dissynergistic. They're dissynergistic. I think that Windfall is a card that could help bring Dark Ritual-type decks back, or maybe just a big mana artifact deck that's not paradoxical that can win with, with, with a storm kill. So I think we should. I think Windfall is a serious candidate, and I think they should seriously consider it. I would definitely unrestrict Bargain, but I would s debate the merits of Windfall, especially since it's so good against workshops. That's where its strength is. What do you think about that? Yeah, I can't help but agree with you there. And I have been on the Hercules Recall train since as long as they'll let me <laughs> and, and and across multiple different archetypes. And I firmly believe that Hercules Recall times three to four is an excellent tool against shops right. in general. And because of the, the tactical and strategic advantage that it has with Windfall, uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, this is a kind of a more sensitive subject, but 
But let's be honest, this vintage format is historically slow. You know, I've been mm. in the throes of the history of vintage. I think actually one of the most interesting years in the whole history of the format is 2006. It's not a year that when you think about the great years of vintage history that pops out in mind, but it was a year where Mindak Gifts won the vintage championship, where Dredge actually became a thing after people underestimated Ravnica, where you actually, the top eight of vintage championship that year, Kevin, had had three or four Dark Ritual combo decks. And it was, and, and Mindak Gifts won. And everyone thought that was actually a great metagame. There were control decks, Gifts, Oath, Control, Oath was in the top eight. There's Control Slaver in the metagame. Bomberman was actually... I think there was a pair of Bomberman, a Bomberman in the top eight, too. I mean, it was a very diverse metagame. I consider that one of the best years in vintage history. Here's where I'm going with that. I think this yeah. metagame needs a, a faster deck. I don't think the metagame needs to be faster, but I think it could stand to give a little bit in terms of having a deck. It could actually win on turn one without, you know, more than like 1% of the time and actually have a decent tier one or tier two deck at that level, like Pitchlong was or Grimlong. I think that this, med I'm not saying that we should have a deck that can consistently turn one, but it really wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if we had a deck that could consistently win like turn two and a half. It really wouldn't. And I think a metagame, I think the vintage is better when Dark Ritual combo decks are actually viable, you know? And the paradoxical decks are certainly capable of winning that fast, but they're oriented, they're intentionally designed to be slow right now. They're not designed to, to win as quickly as they can. So I think the idea of trying to speed up Vintage just a little bit by letting a deck that can actually win, like on turn two or three, you know, having a slight uptick in the frequency of turn one, two or three kills would actually have no harm on Vintage whatsoever in terms of interactivity, in terms of unfunness, but it could actually dramatically improve the diversity of the format. So if I were the DCI, I would, like I said, restrict Mentor and Sphere, which violates my rule about one, no more than one restriction, but I have a reason for that. Um, and I would certainly unrestrict Bargain, and I would probably unrestrict Windfall or consider unrestricting Windfall. Any other thoughts on anything I said? I think that there is a hard limit on how good a ritual-based combo exactly. deck can be in exactly. the format now. Yeah. And and Partly it's be and it's far lower than it was in 2006 or in I most completely prior agree. Points. And part of it is, of course, is because yeah. of the printing of all the thorns effects, thorn of amethyst in 2008, and then Thalia in the you know the last decade in the last five years yeah. is is certainly put a damper on that, among other things. But it would be nice to try and give you know part of the way that those combo decks actually competed, as you'll remember, Kevin, is they had a non-trivial chance of being able to do something on turn one, right? So yeah. Windfall is actually a, a, a kind of an entree into that world again. So anyway, wh which well, card would you like to talk about ne next? Or what, what, yeah, what, my, pet, you, my pet unrestriction. Well, hold on, would you unrestrict Windfall? Yeah, I'm totally in okay. favor of that. <laughs> Go, which card would you like to discuss next? <laughs> my pet unrestriction candidate is Library of Alexandria. We touched on it in a past show, and I know that there are some people who seriously balk at the notion of multiple libraries in Vintage because of how much library can turn uh, in a given game. But I think that once you pass a threshold of having access to multiples of them, that enough tertiary effects happen to the rest of how decks are built and how matchups are played that the, the net result would be positive. And by that, I mean... You have a tension then with how many waste and strip effects you can put into various decks. A lot of people would say, well, the mentor mirror would become disastrous, right? Because whoever got two libraries online would just dominate. Well, maybe, except that 
there is serious tension that we've never really experienced in vintage or most magical formats ever that comes with trying to operate two libraries during your turn, especially in the early game. There is serious tension with casting any of your spells that are actually um, forwarding your game plan, like Monastery Mentor, like Jace the Mind Sculptor, that kind of thing. Casting these spells while trying to maintain multiple colorless lands and not tapping them for anything for any mana. I think that there are interesting there are interesting tensions there that that you can't just go down the road of four libraries and say this dominates this format when the dominant deck of the format right now is workshops right is yeah. a five way strip deck that's that's I, trying to I slow think you the, down the challenge with library i mean i understand your point that if library were unrestricted we'd see a lot more strip waste effects and and maybe other effects like i don't know um Sabo's Web or Blood Moon or, you know, Hell even sitting mm-hmm. in a bottle. But I think the issue is that it's not clear what the spread of decks with library look like to me. And I don't think, I, I think it might just be a race to the bottom in the sense that <sighs> blue decks are going to be fighting against each other on the basis of library. And it's going to create a lot of weird dynamics. I just don't, I just don't <laughs> see library promoting metagame diversity. Like, is it going to boost land still? Is that what's going to get boosted? If so, why wouldn't, like, I don't know, Mentor or Delver decks also be playing for libraries? Do you see what I'm saying? So I just... I it's, I do see what you're saying, but I think the answer is pretty clear. I think that that Mentor and Delver decks, as you put it, that, as they're currently constructed, can't possibly play that many libraries. They can't why? support them. They don't have Gush anymore. They can play as many as they need. The Delver deck right now has four Wasteland. Yeah, yeah, okay, so... Are you going to add four libraries to a four wasteland deck? If I was playing the Delver deck and I would reconfigure it, and I certainly would, I would play a four library Delver deck, no problem. If men- How many wastelands are you playing then? Probably four or five. So you're going to play nine colorless lands in your blue-red aggro deck that's trying to play a one-drop on because turn one. Because that's all you need. You only need one blue mana. You know, you don't need a lot of colored mana. Everything is free or one mana. Okay, so you open up your hand and it has Scalding Tarn and two libraries and Delver secrets. <laughs> Are you going to play Delver? I would. It depends on the player of the draw. <laughs> on the play. Are I would probably play, play library. Interesting. See, this is the kind of thing. We don't have this tension to this degree in our format today. I think you've just jumped to a whole bunch of conclusions about deck construction that would prove to be false. I think there's no way you can run nine colorless well, lands in your blue-red aggro deck. Well, I think Gush, you're going to have to make cuts, Gush, and when you start making cuts, that's what I things get interesting. I think your proposal makes a lot more sense in a metagame in which Gush is unrestricted, because then that because well, then there's a tremendous tension between gut, using the Gush engine and using the library engine. If Gush and library were I, both unrestricted at the same time, I think you'd have a lot more balance. But what I'm saying is that this moment in time, I don't see how an unrestriction of library will promote metagame diversity. That's what I'm concerned about. It just seems... Well, you just described a fundamental shakeup in the first deck you thought of. Yeah, I just... I believe that saying, that would happen across multiple but that, but archetypes, and that would create diversity. What I'm diversity. saying is I want to know where we where it falls out. What's the ultimate metagame result? If, if you don't know... I mean, you're shaking your head. You don't know. So then, to me, that means, you know, <laughs> that, that, that that's not the candidate for unrestriction to promote promote diversity that's all well just because i can't tell you exactly how things shake out does not mean that i don't believe that they would be better than the duopoly we have right now i think multiple different blue decks can make use of library heck a lot of them play their one right now but delver doesn't play its one right now right right so the first deck you thought of is a brand new deck 
I, I, I guess <laughs> what I'm saying is most obviously library will fit in slow blue control decks like Landstill. But but it, which, it should go a lot of places. Which are like single figure, yeah, which are single digit I, okay. decks right now. Uh, you understand my point. My point is without knowing exactly, with more precision, it's it it's yep. it's just it's chaos. It's a chaos on restriction. You're gonna you're gonna have no. It's, well, it's the not. reason I say it's chaos is because you have a lot of immediate effects, secondary effects, and then the ultimate place it lands is just not clear. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> well, uh, okay, that to, none of those things uh, to me say that you shouldn't do it. I I mean I think w one of the thresholds for unrestriction in my m mind is are we you know do we have our finger in the dike with this restriction are we holding something at bay and in the case of library we're holding an uncertain thing at bay we're holding a thing that has never existed at bay but also magic has moved so far beyond and vintage has moved so far beyond the point at which library was printed and restricted that i think we are long past the point where you can expect a vintage deck to even to dominate with sitting with seven cards in its hand Okay. Yes, there are certain games with mentor decks today that, that do get out of hand with that. But I think part of the reason is because of the high variance that a single library has, right? A lot of mentor players have one strip and one library, right? Yeah. And and the fact that we have these games that are like, oh, they got their library, so obviously they dominated. The the dot, dot, dot from that sentence is because I don't have I very many answers to I library. Got, I, got, you know? I, got your, I got your argument. I, I, don't, I don't agree. Yeah. I mean... So there's two possible. I mean, we're talking, I think, past each other a little bit. Your point is your point yeah. is that library can be safely unrestricted and that it won't dominate the format. My my question yes. is, you know, that may or may not be true. I don't. I I my biggest issue is I'm looking at cards to unrestrict to promote format diversity. I don't I don't yeah. know. I'm I'm skeptical that unrestricting library will achieve that. I think its effects are. I believe. I believe its effects are too chaotic. To know so that's that's my position i also think it's probably well, unfun and that is also a factor so anyway that's my position so well the unfun thing i find highly ironic i think many players would love it well, <laughs> many players would flock to a format where you could play four libraries all right <laughs> it, it would be very but expensive that's, 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 that's neither here nor yeah. there uh yeah i don't like the expense factor either but the same goes for imperial seal i guess not to the well, same degree seal mind can, you but it's imperial the same seal problem is not held by the reserve list, so that's less of an. Yeah. That's true. So that's last true. last card to at least throw out there is Flash. I think that Bargain and Bargain is a completely safe unrestriction. I think Windfall is a relatively safe unrestriction. I think Flash is a very interesting restriction, and it's a little bit it's a little bit of a a, a two faced restriction. the The problem with Flash is that everyone knows it's unfun to lose on turn one with Flash, and it's <laughs> fairly easy to set up. Box land, flash, you need one other card, either Academy Rector or Protein Hall. So there's the unfun lose on turn one factor, and you can even use Pact Navigation to protect it. The problem with flash, so there's the, if you're just looking at it from an unfun lens, it's not a safe unrestriction. If you unrestrict flash, you will have a non-trivial number of regular turn one kills. Probably in the range of 10, you know, maybe like 1 in 15 to 1 in 10, somewhere around there, Kevin. You mean the deck yeah, goldfishing? Gold not, you know, of course. Yeah, I think it's. I think the number is probably ten to fifteen. Yeah, somewhere around there. Now, the problem, of course, is that Flash has never been able to do that. And number one, even with Brainstorm and Merchant Scroll and Ponder unrestricted, as we just saw, it was only eight to thirteen percent of top eights in the four months before it was restricted. With Brainstorm and Merchant Scroll restricted. Flash is not going to be nearly as consistent. 
And I've actually put in, put some serious effort into exploring how you would play Flash today. There are some new combos that you could actually use with Flash. So you wouldn't actually you still use Protean Hulk probably, but you wouldn't use the old um, Karmic Guide combo with you know whatever. Um, or you could you know wouldn't use the Sliver the Flash combo. Instead, you would use actually. So the, the so the previous combo was Revel Arc, Body Double, Carry and Feeder, Mog Fanatic, and Body Snatcher, which was five cards. The new combo that you can use is one card less. You can use um, Viscera Seer and Micaeus with Ballista to go infinite with Karmic Guide. So it's one card less. I won't bore the audience with how that combo works, but it's so it's a slight upgrade. But here's the problem with the combo, both in 2008 and today. It loses to Leyline of the Void, and even worse, it loses to Pithing Needle, Phyrexian Revoker, a whole bunch of cards that didn't exist back then. So I think in many ways the combo, and not to mention all the other graveyard hate that exists today, it's much, much more vulnerable than it ever was. So in essence, it's a three-card combo. Now you can go the Jason Jaco route. So I, here's the flash deck I built. Kevin, I'll just run it off, okay? Four Flash, four Flash, okay. four Protean Hulk, two Summoner's Pack, one Micaeus, one Walking Ballista, one Viscera Seer, one Karmic Guide, Scroll, Ponder, Ancestral, Time Walk, Mystical, Vamp, Getaxian Probe, Demonic Tutor, Brainstorm, Dig Through Time, four Force, four Mental Misstep, four Pact Negation, one Chain of Vapor, and 20 Mana. Um, so that deck is pretty cool, but here's the problem. The <laughs> problem is it just loses to Leyline. It loses to a Sudden Shock. It loses to a... I mean, there's all kinds of cards that are uncounterable that can just destroy this, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it loses to an yep. extirpate. It loses to an uncountered uh, surgical extraction, right? I mean, there's... So it takes a lot of splash hate from Dredge. Yeah, Leyline of the Void, certainly. Uh, rest in peace. Now, you can build the Flash deck with Academy Rector and go the show-and-tell route and play Flash Rector with Bargain, and then you might get, you know, with Cabal Therapy... You're not you're not as vulnerable to um, you're not as vulnerable to graveyard hate because you can just show and tell out. Uh, well, bargain. yeah, but that's only one bargain. You'd have to play omniscience as well. Um, yeah. But that deck is also much slower, so it's going to have less turn one flash kills, and you also can't play yep. pact mitigation in that deck. So here's what I predict what would happen if flash run restricted. You could build my deck. It would be very good. You would have a lot of you know, a decent amount of turn one kills, not consistent, not reliable, like you said, between 10 and 15%. And that's gold fishing. It would be even less in reality because you people would be playing force and extirpate and stuff like that. It would certainly diversify the format because then people have to play other things. But it's interesting, by the way, that even workshops could just play, you know, like I said, Phyrexian Revoker and completely stop this combo. So you didn't have to figure out, is there an all right. sideboard I could use that could beat Phyrexian Revoker and all of that, right? Yeah. <laughs> so... I think it would diversify the format, it would improve the diversity of the format, and it would actually um, be under, I don't think it would be more than, I would be sh- I would be shocked if it was more than 15% of top eights. Yeah, it sounds more like a 5 to 7% deck to me. But you don't think Flash should be unrestricted? Well, there's there are different kinds of dangers in the format, right? And the, the turn one danger is historically very frowned upon from a policy standpoint and from a community standpoint, right? And I know that the percentages are small, don't get me wrong. And I also know we have more and better weapons to fight it than before. But I also wonder if you could add a 5 to 7% deck in the the metagame right now that was a turn one combo deck a lot of the time, 
would you really want to, right? If you could just artificially make Belcher better in vintage, it was, you know, make Belcher 10% of the metagame right now. Would well, you want to? I just to? said I think we need a Dark Ritual deck that's, that's a larger part of the metagame. Yeah, understood. But that's a Dark Ritual deck. Dark Ritual decks have different mechanics, different fundamental underpinnings about how people interact with them and how they interact with other decks. These, th- This deck is more like Dragon, right? Yes. You would never really equate Dragon to to, to Dark Petition Storm, right? Um, Dra- Dragon always had a limiting factor in that it had to set up its graveyard or it had to play pe- Bazaar, so it was always a turn petition slower. Dark can't win with Leyline and play either. Uh, that's 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 non sequitur. Okay. <laughs> My Sorry, point I'm not is tracking. the way that pe- the way that people and policy interact with turn yes, one decks is a bit more sensitive. Is is power- yes. It's powerfully but, but, negative. I, yeah. I guess what I'm saying is like, okay, right now we have let's say a turn one kill in every fifty games. That's the sample from the VSL. I think someone did the math. It was like there was one turn turn one okay. kill in 50 games. It's probably less today because okay. there's like no DPS and no gush bond, right? So let's say there's like one turn one kill, I don't know, every between 50 and 100 games. Is it really going to be the end of the world if we have like, I, I sorry, I don't know, like between, you know, three turn one kills every, you know, three or four or five turn one kills every 100 games? You, know, you see what I'm saying? Like, I don't think... I, I don't do. think that the number I of do. turn one kills is actually going to be that much more, a little bit more, because you're having you have a deck that's like like you said, seven percent of the metagame at most that has like ten mm-hmm. percent of the time goldfish, you know, and then post board even less because you're going to be dealing with all this hate. So I just I, the number of turn one actual turn one kills is not actually going to be that relevant. But I do understand what you're saying that there is a distaste for that. What there would be is a lot more turn two or turn three kills. And by a lot more, I mean like, I don't know, 10, 10, 15% more than normal or something like that in a tournament. Yeah, I was going to make a similar comment earlier about how, in my opinion, the oppressive part of the Flash deck was just the turn one setup, (laughs) force your one attempt at interacting and then Flash you, right? Because that's one thing the Flash deck, the original one was so good at was the setup turn, right? And so many ways on turn one to set up the combo. So so he that it was demoralizing so here's the issue if we are really at this duopoly metagame and it can't be solved we have to make hard choices and one of those hard choices might be unrestricting <laughs> yep. something like flash not because we think it's the optimal thing to do but because it might actually improve the metagame in terms of diversity now and with yeah. that, you know and the cost is of course yeah you, you you're going to have some non-games but but really it's going to be nothing like it was back then i mean Bergen school and brainstorm are both restricted brainstorm being restricted is a huge detriment to this deck which which is going to sure. draw its combo Definitely. cards and going to have to find brainstorm. Like what happens when it has viscera yeah. seer in its opening hand? You know. <laughs> so anyway. I, I yeah. Any well yeah. I, I see your point exactly, and that was the reason for uh, body snatcher, wasn't it? Right. <laughs> was to get a card combo card That's out of your true. hand. You probably need but, to add that. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we're splitting hairs. Um, I do think that there is very little risk that this deck would become dominant. Well, then it should be restricted I do think according that to your criteria. <laughs> Well, I know it's not just that. There are a great many things that I would do differently about the current nature of the restricted list. Uh, but the thing is, is that different people react negatively to different things, right? You had a, a power, a pretty negative reaction to the notion of there being four libraries. Yeah, it's, it's and that's your it, but, prerogative. I mean, there are things you're concerned well, about in again, the format. It's because I think we have different goals with unrestriction. One of them is, do we think this? Mm-hmm. If there's a, it's, let me put put it this way: if a card can be unrestricted and it won't see any play. You and I would both agree it should be unrestricted. That's a much lower threshold Definitely. than dominance, right? 
Yeah. Oh, definitely. That's, so that's definitely. a universal ag- agreement. We're ta- The immediate interest here is cards that can be unrestricted, but will help create new decks and diversify the format. I think that Windfall yeah. is in that category. I don't think Library is. I do think it will create boost, uh, either create new decks or boost marginal decks. That's the goal. I it I the yeah. reason I'm skeptical or hesitant about libraries because I think its effects are too unpredictable. I think Flash clearly falls into this second category. Won't be dominant, but will diversify the format. The problem is that's not the yeah. end of the that's not the end of the analysis. There's another consideration yeah. which is, you know, is it going to be fun? Will it increase the, you know, the dynamism of the format, the experience of the format, the interactivity of the format? So yeah. So I think library also falters a little bit there. That's where I'm concerned. So anyway, I I think library creates a, a incredible amount of dynamism and interactivity. <laughs> it's a fundamentally interactive card, right? What Brian Weissman is on record saying he will not play in an old school format where library is permitted as a one of and strip mine is restricted simply because he feels like library just wins games by itself. He feels it's too un, non-interactive. Okay, well, that's fine. And part of the reason, as I said earlier in Vintage today, that library wins games is because we're not equipped to deal with it. You, you know, let me put it another way. How, how often do you ride library to victory against shops these days? Mm, it's, yeah, it's, it's a, a crapshoot, crap right? You, you get those opening hands where you look, it's like, I could play this library. If I get to untap with it, it's going to be very good. If I don't, I've just maybe given up the game because I played this library, right? right? I imagine that effect amplified by you open two libraries in your opening hand. Well, uh, first one's going to get wasted, but what about the second one? I might draw a card on turn three. You know, I just, I think we have enough tools to, to keep that in you check. Know, just I, as you've said similarly old, about Flash. But I said the know? same thing about old school. You know, in old school, you have Blood Moon and City in a Bottle and Stone Rain and all these other effects, and people are still afraid of library. Any, and in any case, you know, including... Brian Weissman, yeah. in any case. That, that, that's that's so fine. So at the end that's of the day, <laughs> I just want to be clear. If I were the DCI, I would just unrestrict bargain and possibly unrestrict windfall. I would bring up Flash for conversation and seriously consider it, but but probably not unrestrict Flash at this point. I think the metagame has to be a little bit more dire, although to be candid, it's hard to imagine more dire, at least according to the challenges, <laughs> right? I mean, 70% mentor in shops is, is about as dire as you can get. So I would seriously consider it, but I probably would not start there. That's where I land. I think that this discussion has clarified one thing with certainty, and that is there are many options. Yes. And there are many different directions they could go in. And we have, it's been too long since we've seen an unrestriction, yep. right? These it really conversation has. we just had was true was true six months ago and 12 months ago. Bargain hasn't been, hasn't been problematic for years. <laughs> Ever since Gristlebrand basically was printed, Bargain just kind of said, oh, okay. And and it's not the only thing. So I'm with you. I encourage the DCI to consider some of these things we've discussed and don't make a lot of changes at once, but please have a plan to make changes. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> yes, I, I endorse that 100%. We're in accord. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So what about our question for this episode? What do you think the DCI should do at the end of August? Was it August 28th is the next band and restricted list? Something like that? That's right. That's right. We want to hear from you. What do you think we should do? What do you think they should do? So thank you for listening to episode 69 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Game. <laughs> <laughs>